Saturday, March 17th, 1956, New York City. It's 11.45 p.m. on a cold St. Patrick's night. We're with comedian Fred Allen taking a stroll. As of late, he's been a regular panel member on CBS's What's My Line and was to appear on Sunday, March 18th. Allen is stricken with a heart attack. He collapses in front of 171 West 57th Street. He's carried into the building's lobby where, ironically, a good friend was throwing a party. Leonard Lyons, New York Post columnist, was just leaving when he saw the scene. Allen was administered Roman Catholic last rites by Father Thomas Tierney, another good friend. Doctors ran to his aid, but Fred Allen was pronounced dead at 12.05 a.m. He was 61 years old. His body was taken to the police station, and his wife, Portland Hoffa, was immediately notified. His death sent the nation into a state of mourning. John Steinbeck called him the best humorist of his day, and it was widely agreed by his peers that Allen could have been the 20th century's version of Mark Twain, if only he'd wanted to. In 17 years on radio, Fred Allen had high ratings in hypertension. He fought with network executives and sponsors and read several newspapers each day. And it was his friendly feud with Jack Benny that sold out the Pierre Hotel almost 19 years to the day before his death. And he's a main reason for Breaking Walls episode 137. My name is James Scully. This is the podcast on the history of U.S. network radio broadcasting. Tonight, we'll focus on radio and St. Patrick's Day. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform, including YouTube and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is The Sales of Galway by William Garrett Snuffy Walden for Wyndham Hill Records and his album, Celtic Christmas 3. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And the first eight chapters of the 2022 official Tribeca audio selection, Burning Gotham, are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. Have you been on a radio program regularly? Has it been on the air for a long time? 
And you're a lady. Is your voice terribly well known to some member of this panel? <laughs> sometimes yes and sometimes no. <laughs> I think yes would be right for that. Yes is the answer? Mm-hmm. Uh, is, your <laughs> is your first name from Maine and your last name from this panel? Yes, it is. <laughs> is Portland, huh? Right. right. I didn't realize she was a ringer there. The I ringer. Mark, Mrs. Mark. Fred Allen, meet Mr. Fred Allen. Nice I, to meet you, dear. I, I, this I, has I, been the longest evening. Really? <laughs> I didn't realize that you were weren't a recognized act. In 1922, a 28-year-old Fred Allen, already a vaudeville veteran, was hired by J.J. Schubert for his Broadway production, The Passing Show of 1922. Allen was gaining fame as a monologuist. He was in charge of writing his own material. One popular gag was the old joke cemetery. Allen had a curtain painted as a graveyard. On the tombstones were the punchlines to 46 old jokes. When Allen moved with the show to Chicago, he met a dancer named Partland Hoffa. There, the producers told Allen to drop the cemetery gag. The show was moving to Hollywood. Allen quit. Back in New York, he demanded royalties from the Schuberts when the gag turned up in their other acts. So they rehired him to MC artists and models. In the review, the chorus women were topless. Allen came on after the women were finished. The Schuberts and Allen soon came to a mutual release. Fred and Portland were married in 1927, and Allen starred in similar reviews until Portland joined him on stage. Decades later, their friend, Jim Harkins, reflected on Allen and Portland's relationship. And this wonderful woman, she was a great inspiration to Fred in everything he did because he respected her so much. When he would write hour after hour and hour at any time in the morning, she was with him, always all night when he'd be writing, and she would set the time for him to take the walks. When she'd say, that's enough, let's take a walk, he would drop everything. There was never any such thing as a squabble in that family, and there was no one ever as married as they were, because they were always together, everywhere, no matter where they went. He went nowhere without her, and the same with Portland. She never went anywhere without him. And if they walked down the street and holding hands, it wasn't any silly holding hands. It was a beautiful bond between two people that... The average person today with this crazy way of living doesn't understand. Together they were a hit. Four years later, Allen was contemplating radio. By 1932, big names like Ed Sullivan, Ed Wynn, and George Jessel were on radio. Jessel convinced Allen to audition. He was an actor of the old school, you know, a comedian with a fine intellect. His talents would have stood up in the days of Raymond Hitchcock, Nat Goodwin, Willie Collier, and Julius Tannen on the stage. And the lecture halls, he would have ably held his own with any Will Rogers, Peter Finley Dunn, and all the other giants of a more literate age. And as I think of him now, I think that Fred would have been more appreciated in the days of swirling capes and low bows. I was going to do a show in the fall, and something happened to it, and at that time, radio was coming along, and fellas were getting in it, 
Uh, Ed Sullivan was in it, and uh, Jack Benny, and Eddie Cantor, and Ed Wynn. They were just starting in it. So it was interesting, and we started to uh, audition. We auditioned for Old Gold at one time with Kate Smith, the Howard Brothers, and Omen and Harden, and we were turned down. Why? Well, the sponsor didn't like it. Uh, I was in it, Kate Smith was in it, Willie and Jean Howard in it, and Omen and Arden were in it, and the whole show was, uh, they didn't want any part of it. So everybody went out, Kate went out by herself and did well, and Willie, poor Willie's gone now, but he, he worked until the end, and Omen and Arden functioned, and I've survived some way without the company. Alan felt that writing a sketch show centered around characters in different business backgrounds would appeal. The corn products company hired him. Alan was paid $1,000 per week, but he had to produce the show out of his own pocket. He co-wrote it with Harry Tugant. Producer Roger White remembered that time. Fred Allen's producer in the days of the Linnet Bath Club. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, the makers of Linnet, who present another in their series of Linnet Bath Club Reviews, starring Fred Allen. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Who is it from, boy? Joe Miller, the old joke man. Yes? He says you can't be here tonight. That's too bad. The telegram's correct. To save you the trouble, I read it on the way up. To save me some more trouble, you can pay for it on the way back. Okay. And now, on with the show. After six or seven weeks, the critics, everybody, who is this Fred Allen? That's what really started him. All the radio critics just want to know who Fred Allen was. From there on, he really started to rise. The Lynette Bath Club Review premiered on Sunday, October 23, 1932 over CBS. Right from the beginning, Allen had trouble with his sponsors. Didn't you even have a sponsor's wife who made suggestions who contributed to your program? That's true. In the early days on our first program, the Linnet program, we had the sponsor's wife like organ music. And right in the middle of our comedy program, every week we had to have an organ solo. And then when the woman found out that the organ was not in the studio, that it was two miles away from the studio and was piped in, this electronic marvel astounded her, and she thought that the people should be let in on that, so we had to announce that the organ is not in the studio, it's two miles away. Oh, and no. And if you didn't believe it, you could go walk it. <laughs> as far as we were concerned, it was uphill, too. The season rating was 11.9, 39th overall. Roughly 5 million people tuned in, and the show bested the Manhattan merry-go-round opposite on NBC. The program was canceled after six months. Fred returned to radio on Friday, August 4th, 1933, over NBC. His new show was the Salad Bowl Review for Hellman's Mayonnaise. Allen was now paid $4,000 per week. Minerva Pius joined the cast. She'd later be known for her ethnic character portrayals. It would mark the beginning of a six-year relationship with the National Broadcasting Company. Presenting Fred Allen. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and as Robinson Crusoe used to say whenever he heard static, well, if it isn't Friday again. But in those days, Friday didn't bring him the Salad Bowl Review. 
The papers say that the hunting season has opened, and everyone knows that the well-dressed quail is wearing a feathered frown. But while the hunter is away, his wife home in the kitchen doesn't even have to hunt through her recipe book to find that the well-dressed salad is still wearing Hellman's mayonnaise. So much for hunting unless you've lost something. Tonight, if you'll step into the salad bowl, ladies and gentlemen, we'll take you back to the Bedlam Sanatorium. I'm still Dr. Allen, and while I'm getting my breath after running a temperature, Ferdy Grofay will show you into the waiting room accompanied by his orchestra. Allen introduced the etiquette department and the question box. People could write in to have their questions answered on air, with instructions to try to slip things by the censors. He started a newsreel. It was the forerunner to the satirical comedy that would become a program staple. The ad agency who held the Hellman's account liked the program so much that they aired it through autumn, long past mayonnaise's shelf life in a time when it was a seasonal condiment for salads. However, by December 1st, 1933, the show had to exit the air. Now, Sal Hepatica laxatives from Bristol-Myers wanted in. Beginning on January 4th, 1934, Fred Allen debuted as MC for the Sal Hepatica Review. No, I don't know. We were on for laxative, and we, <laughs> we were on for cigarettes. We've been on for a number of things. No, I don't. I, if it's within the law, I don't see why I should be concerned. People are in a legitimate business, and they want to sponsor me, or they can legally advertise. I don't see why I should be the one to say I don't want to be associated with it. On March 21, 1934, the broadcast was expanded to an hour. It now included Ipana toothpaste and was called the Hour of Smiles. Allen was given no additional budget, and each show had to be performed twice, once for each coast. Allen hired a couple of scriptwriters to help. One of them was Herman Wook, who later won a Pulitzer Prize for his 1951 novel, The Cane Mutiny. I was one of his assistant scriptwriters in Town Hall Tonight, of course, Fred was by far the best writer of the lot on the show, and I think I can say, and nobody would argue this statement, that Fred was the best writer that radio ever had. He was an original humorist, the first quality, and the purpose of having youngsters like myself around was simply to uh, eke out the sheer volume of the material. By then, the program had become a local review with news. On July 11th, the show was retitled Town Hall Tonight. The tight budget left no room for big stars. Allen had to develop plot lines. Things were running smoothly until Allen was called into the agency offices. They objected to some of his jokes and didn't like the concept of a running gag, something Allen had begun to develop. Allen later explained that running gags were very important because they stimulated a listener's memory and interest. The ad agency disagreed. Allen paid them no mind. Why do you describe an advertising agency as being 85% confusion and 15% commission? Well, because in the early days of radio, these men who are good, competent businessmen, I certainly were good advertising men, were thrown into yeah. another business that they didn't understand. Oh, right. They didn't 
know anything about show business or actors, and consequently they just treated all of us the way they treated their copy or their tomatoes or the things that they were trying to sell or advertise in the other media until radio got started. Mm-hmm. They were forcing their opinions on the actors and the things that the audience got were the uh, the likes and dislikes of their friends and relatives and close associates, you know. They foisted their taste on the general public. I mean, if a sponsor liked a violin player, he had a violin player on. The people may not like violin players, mm-hmm. as proven by Jack Benny's career. He was forced into comedy off the concert stage. Allen's Town Hall Tonight was pulling a rating of 18.4 when on Sunday, December 30th, 1936, during the East Coast broadcast, Allen had on a nine-year-old violinist named Stuart Kanan. Kanan played a solo of Schubert's The Bee. Noted poor violinist Jack Benny had the country's highest-rated program. Fred Allen had no way of knowing whether Jack would respond. think it's too bad, Stuart, that we haven't time to ask you to play an encore. You are without a doubt the most remarkable child violinist I have ever heard. Am I right, Murray? What I do you think? I think so. How long have you been studying? Five years. Five years, huh? And you're ten years old? That isn't a full-size violin, no. is it? No. Did you, did you start on that at five years or a smaller? No, smaller one. Smaller than the yeah. man, huh? Three quarters. That's a three quarters, isn't yeah. it? Imagine if 10 or 15 years from now and you're playing the cello up under your chin. <laughs> what grade are you in at school? Public school. Public school? Do you go to public school? 5B. 5B? Where do you live? Edgemere? Edgemere. And you're in 5B, huh? Yes. What do you know, Mari? A little fella in the fifth grade of school and already plays better than Jack Benny. <laughs> Well, we want to thank you very much. Fred had a boy violinist on the show. He was 10 years old, and he played the B. And when he got through with the number, he said to him, he asked his boy, he said, how old are you? And the boy says, 10. He says, 10 years old, and you played the B so well. He says, Jack Benny ought to be ashamed of himself. And that's all he said. And he probably said that, knowing that I was listening to his show, just to make me laugh. Jack had Stuart Kanan on his January 31st, 1937 episode. He promised to play the B the following week. But naturally, his violin got stolen. So on the next show, on my show, at the very tag of the show, the thing we call the tag, I said to Mary, and this was merely to make Fred laugh, I said, Mary, take this, I'm going to dictate a message to Fred Allen. I want you to mail it for me. Say, dear Fred... When I was 10 years old, I could play the B, too. Well, the next week, Fred had some stooges on who were supposed to have known me in Waukegan, Illinois, to prove that I couldn't play the B when I was 10 years old. The following week on my show, I brought people on from Waukegan who said I could play the B when I was 10 years old. And... Before we knew it, we were into the darndest feud you have ever seen, which was very funny. And the strange part of it is, I can safely say from six to eight months with this feud, before we even called each other on the phone about it. Yes, sir. Thank you. 
<laughs> Hello again, this is Jack Benny, that little ray of sunshine, just back from a week at Palm Springs and feeling twice as healthy as ever before. And anything but anemic. Well, that's fine, Jack, that's fine. Uh, did you get on there to get rid of your cold? Yes, Don, my cold and Fred Allen. <laughs> the cold doesn't bother me anymore. Well, tell me, Jack, uh, have you had any more dreams about Allen since last Sunday? Yes, I have, and it certainly makes a lie out of that old saying that you meet a better class of people in your dreams. <laughs> Say, uh, not wishing to interrupt myself, but... Uh... While I think of it, did you uh, hear Mr. B last Sunday? Oh, yeah. Yes, Jack had a pretty good program, didn't he, Fred? You don't think it sounded any better just because it was coming out of the Waldorf Astoria, do you? <laughs> I'll bet he won't get his program in there again next Sunday without baggage. Why? <laughs> what do you mean, Fred? Jack didn't pull any faux pas at the Waldorf, did he? Why, that hope day... You know, coming out, walking down the, one of the long halls there, he saw a lot of empty finger bowls stacked up on a table. You mean to say Jack didn't know what they were? He never saw a finger bowl before. He said, gosh, the next war is going to be terrible. They're making trench hats for children. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Imagine that guy driving up in front of the Waldorf in a trailer. <laughs> the doorman must have been plenty mortified. At the Waldorf? Yeah. The doorman at the Waldorf didn't even know what the trailer was. He thought one of the penthouses blew off the roof. <laughs> oh, say, uh, Fred, did you hear Jack say that you misinformed your radio audience 400 people around the country? <laughs> he wouldn't know what it meant to cater to the 400. <laughs> Oh, and another thing I thought was funny was when he grills little Stuart Canaan. The another thing. Wait a minute. What was the first thing you thought was funny? <laughs> Never mind another thing you thought was funny. What was... <laughs> now, let's isolate that thing that was funny. What? Uh, when Jack was... flew off the roof. <laughs> oh, uh, well, he's had plenty of practice flying off the handle. They can't. Uh, he's been modeling for at Hamaker Schlemmers, you know, for hammers down there for a long time. He flies off the handle, and if the hammer can't do it, it's ready to sell. But you said about uh, little Stuart Canaan, the... Yeah, uh, he grilled the little fellow, you know. Oh, that little boy who played the bee. Mm -hmm. Why that big bully picking on a little fellow like Stuart? Benny's a bully, hey, Benny's a bully, Benny's a bully, Benny's a bully. Why doesn't he pick on somebody your size? He's the kind of a guy who gives Shirley Temple a hot foot. <laughs> Why, of all the cowards, the last time he got into an argument with the Dion Quintuplets, he invited them outside one by one. <laughs> Wait a minute, Fred. Jack's all right. I, I think I'll go over and see him next Sunday. Why? Wait a minute, Fred. You're not going to break up his program, are you? I'll tell him a thing or two. No, I, I won't tax him mentally. I'll just tell him a thing. <laughs> the feud got bigger each week. By February, Alan's rating was up to 25.4. More than 13 million people were listening. Eventually, Benny and Allen decided to meet in the fight of the century. It was to be March 14th over Benny's program. Hey, what's going on in here? NBC was flooded with ticket requests. 
The show was moved to the Grand Ballroom at the Hotel Pierre in New York to accommodate the crowds. I heard that disturbance outside. Now, whoever's manipulating that fog on in here has got to cut it out. Well, as I live and regret that there are no locks on studio doors. If it isn't Blue Allen. Now, listen, Allen, what's the idea of breaking in here in the middle of my singing? Singing? Yes. Now, listen, Betty. I didn't mind it when you scraped that overnight bag two weeks ago <laughs> and called that playing the bees. Yeah. But when you stand here tonight and set that whooping cough to music <laughs> and call that singing, you're going too far. Oh, you didn't like it, huh? Like it? Why, you make Andy Devine sound like Lawrence Tibbet. <laughs> Now, look here, Alan. I don't care what you say about my singing or my violin playing on your own program. But when you come up here, be careful. After all, I've got listeners. Keep your family out of this. <laughs> listen. My family, my family likes my singing and my violin playing, too. Your violin playing? Yeah. You're using the verb loosely, Mr. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Why, uh... <laughs> Why, if I was a horse, if I was a pony even, yeah. and found out, found <laughs> out that my tail, <laughs> found out that any part of my tail was being used in your violin bow, I'd hang my head in my oat bag from then on. <laughs> Well, you listen to me, you Wednesday night hawk. Another crack like that, and Town Hall will be looking for a new janitor. Why? Why, you fugitive from a Ripley cartoon? <laughs> I ought to bend your nose around until if you want to smell anything, you'll have to curb it. <laughs> you lay a hand on me. Slip. You lay a hand on me. Anything we'll say accidentally will be better than the script. <laughs> okay, and you lay a hand on me, Benny, and you'll be hollering strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and health. Oh, listen to that smile of beauty. Keep this up, Alan, and I'll ask Don Wilson to fall on you. And if Wilson falls on you, you know what that means. Huh? Oh, boy, press ham. <laughs> that a girl, Mary, that's a honey. Quiet, Coward. Coward? The two stepped outside to have it out. But they returned backslapping and vaudeville reminiscing. Now, Alan, I'm up here attending to my own business. There's no place to settle our private affairs. Three days later, on March 17, 1937, Alan celebrated St. Patrick's Day on the air. New York City, New York. New 20th century picture, Love is News, is held over a second week at the Roxy Theater. Produced by Darrell Zanuck, written by Harry Tugand and Jack Yellen, Love is News registers comedy triumph. Town Hall News brings you a 10-second preview of this excellent film, Love is News. Wait for Dixie newspaper, read all about it. What's the headline, boy? Jack Benny and Fred Allen kiss and make up. Is that a front-page romance? And how, mister? With those two mudslingers... Love is news. New York City, New York. 
Ship officers report stormy crossings on Atlantic Ocean. Record gales lash heavy seas, and ships experience trouble in navigating through storms. Town Hall News flashes candid camera shot of a terrible sea. The sea. Encore, encore, Harry. <laughs> I don't know about the bow, but it was good and nitchy there at the beginning. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. And now, Rowell, Rowell, why don't you have say, for one minute, please? If, I, if, if you'll bear with me, just, I would like to see just a words. moment, ladies and gentlemen. I'll uh, I'll try to find out what's on the my mind of this disgruntled Eskimo. If he'll just turn around. Well, I was just practicing. Why, Harry Von Zell, a big boy like you. <laughs> It might have sounded funny, but you know, last night I was reading about Demosthenes. And what are Demosthenes? Oh, spread out. A big boy like you. Demosthenes was a famous Greek orator. And he used to practice speaking, you know, with pebbles in his mouth to improve his diction and enunciation. Like this, look. Friends, rowers, and country. And just what do you... He didn't say that. Huh? And just what do you... <laughs> Just what do you hope to accomplish pursuing this strange pastime, Harry? Well, Fred, I, I just thought I'd keep practicing so that when I passed along those friendly tips about salopatica, there wouldn't be a chance of a single word being missed. Because to know about salopatica is to know a mighty effective way to get after those dull, logy, headachey feelings we have so often. Those under-par feelings usually caused by accumulated waste and resulting acidity. You see, ladies and gentlemen... Sal hepatica is the mineral salt laxative that gets after both of those things at once. It removes waste through laxation, and it helps nature combat that acidity. So the next time you feel under the weather, put two teaspoonfuls of sal hepatica in a glass of water and drink it. You'll soon be feeling your old normal self again if you remember sal hepatica for the smile of health. Fred Allen ended the 1936-37 season with the sixth most listened to program on radio. Thank you, Peter Van Steeden and the Ipana Troubadours have just played Serenade in the Night. Now, on Friday night, there will That's be an... That's Oh, God. Now, quiet, please. Look, if that is somebody left over from a... Uh, hello? <laughs> Well, say you've done it again, haven't you? <laughs> well, sir, the the chairman laughed when I said I was going to take the floor. He didn't know the linoleum wasn't paid for. Well, it can lay there with the linoleum. As well. <laughs> If it isn't Portland. Yes, Papa sent me over to see you. It's very important. What's important? Papa says you should make up your mind what night you're going to be on the radio. Well, you don't think just because I went on with Jack Benny last Sunday that the people are getting confused, do you? I'll say they are. I saw the man upstairs brushing his teeth with Jello this morning. <laughs> well... <laughs> See, you will get a life membership in the Don Wilson Foundation <laughs> for that. 
You saved them that much work next Sunday. <laughs> well, that doesn't make any difference. People brush their teeth with Jello just as long as they don't try to buy Ipanner in six delicious flavors. They'll be all right. Come in. Telegram for Fred Allen. Right here, boy. All right, sign here. Here's a pencil. Thank you, son. The boy's still waiting, Mr. Allen. Uh, thank you, son. Don't give me none of that, buddy. Now, see here. Listen, Greaseball, I don't mind not getting my tip, but when you try to cop my pencil, you're rubbing it in. Here's your pencil, Stickler. Okay, cheapskate. That boy's too fresh. Why don't you tear up the telegram and get even with him, Mr. Allen? No, here, you uh, you read it. I, I've got to blow down my neck. Blow down your neck? Yes, I'm... I'm getting hot under the collar. I'll see who the telegram's from. All right. <laughs> what does it say? Dear Palsy Wowsy, happy birthday to you. I know it isn't your birthday, but I had to have an excuse to send you loads of love. Who sent that? It's signed Jack Benny. <laughs> oh, Jackie, hey. <laughs> He's a prince. Oh, there's a sweet guy, Portland. Good old Jackie. Gosh, he's so sweet, he's almost sticky. It's silly to send a birthday wire when it isn't your birthday. Listen, it isn't the stupidity. It's the sentiment gets me. There's the whitest guy I know. Yes, you was anemic. Now, listen, don't let anyone tell you Jackie Benny's anemic. He just stays white on purpose so everybody else will look healthy. Gosh, Jack must have a big heart. Why, Jackie Benny's heart's so big, you can put a stethoscope on him any place and get action. Did you hear his program last Sunday? Yes. What was that static right in the middle of it? Static? Was it before or after Jack and I sang? It was during. During? Well, let me tell you something. A lot of people didn't catch our names when we sang. How do you know? Nelson Eddy got 300 wires from people who said they enjoyed his double voice solo. Gosh, to me it sounded like two wildcats picketing a pet shop. Two wildcats picketing a pet shop. <laughs> Do you know that the next morning after Jackie and I sang at the pier, all of the flowers bloomed in Central Park? They thought the robins were back from the south? From then on, jokes about Benny were surefire hits. Mary, no! God, let Let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place 
is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Makers of Kicks invite you to beat the band. If you can. General Mills, Makers of Kicks, K-I-X Kicks, that delicious new ready-to-eat corn cereal that comes in delicious round golden bubbles, brings you another session of that new novel radio game, Beat the Band. Featuring Ted Weems and his music, Perry Como, Marvel Maxwell, Elmo Tanner, Arm Downs, Country Washburn, Red Ingle, and Parker Gibbs, who join with Gary Moore to bring you this opportunity to beat the band. And the band you have to beat. Sure, and it's Ted O'Weems and his band, celebrating St. Patrick's Day, with his arrangement of The Wearing of the Green. <laughs> Originally broadcast from Chicago, NBC's Beat the Band began airing on January 28, 1940 at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It was sponsored by Kick Serial. Listeners submitted riddles with song titles. If the band couldn't figure out the answer, the riddle submitter got $30 and a box of Kick Serial. Gary Moore emceed, and Ted Weems conducted his orchestra. His three singers were Parker Gibbs, Marvel Marilyn Maxwell, and the soon-to-break-out Perry Como. The March 17, 1940 episode was called The Wearing of the Green. you have to beat. Now meet the man who helps you beat the band, Gary Moore. Well, Ford, I think I'll occupy my time today trying to control those involuntary jam sessions that keep springing up lately, because these questions can fight it out without much help from me. And need I mention that each question used today will earn the writer of that question $10. Besides that, double money, $20, and a case of kicks is guaranteed to those whose questions beat the band. But it may be much more, because we have a $100 bonus to divide among those who beat the band. For example, if three people beat the band, they get 33 and one-third dollars, plus ten dollars for their question, and a case of kicks. However, if only one person beats the band, that person will get the entire $100 bonus, plus ten for the question, and a case of kicks. Now, that's simple, isn't it? And profitable, too, if you can beat the band. So, uh, why not try it, by the way, if you haven't already? Send your question to Beat the Band, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now, as we get into our questions, remember to listen for the boom of the old bass drum. It means that someone's question has beat the band. This portion of our program, of course, is unrehearsed, and the men in the band do not know the questions I will ask. All right, fellas, a quick mental switch to your boyhood. 
Uh, Mrs. C.I. DeWeese of Irwin, Pennsylvania writes, While little Johnny's mother was washing his mouth out with soap, his little sister looked at him accusingly and said, What? My little Johnny's mother... All right, there goes Elmo Tanner's hand up in the air. Elmo, what is it? A sin to tell a lie? Oh, that would have been awful good, Elmo. I'm awful sorry you didn't win. No, the answer is, ooh, what you said. Ooh, that's why she washed his mouth out. I'm awful awful sorry, Elmo. You're going to have to throw 50 cents on the drum, if you will. Boom, there it goes. And Mrs. C.E. DeWeese of Irwin, Pennsylvania, receives a full case of kicks and a guarantee of not less than $20, but it may be much more. Remember that bonus. Incidentally, uh, Elmo... Can you, uh, can you sing or whistle, ooh, what you said? If you can, you get five points on the scoreboard. All right, good enough. I give you five points on the... I'm surprised he can whistle. You know, Elmo is now a three days a father. Isn't that cute? Three days, guys, George. Uh, uh, incidentally, it's a seven-pound boy. Uh, has you got a job yet, Elmo? Huh? No job, huh? Shiftless little fellow, isn't he? Well, all right, ne- never mind. Maybe his pappy can do better. But if you're going to keep throwing 50 cents in the drum, he's going to be broke before he gets to be two years old. But now we come to our second question, today being a great day for the Irish. And if you don't believe it, ask one of them. We offer a question propounded by Paul D. Lytle of Urbana, Illinois. Says Patrick, "'Tis a great distance this trip I'm taking. Now, what song title is suggested by that? "'Tis a great distance this trip I'm taking.' And there goes Elmo Terry. He wants to try again, all right? It's a long way to Tipperary. Bravo, my boy. You got it. All right, all right. Tanner gets ten points up on the scoreboard and doesn't have to feed the old bass drum. Now, here we go into our third question. Are there uh, any leathernecks in the crowd? Graham Moore of Seattle, Washington writes, What very popular song is suggested by the motto of the United States Marines, Semper Fidelis? What very popular song? All right, there goes Parker Gibbs. Hand up in the air. Semper is faithful forever. That's absolutely right. Semper Fidelis means always faithful. Always faithful, yeah. Good enough. Can you play it? Good enough. Good enough. Parker Gibbs gets his first ten points up on the scoreboard for today. And now, boys, you can take it easy, because here's one for Ted to answer. Ted, if the whole band started playing at once, and they all started on the same tune, what would the title be? Well, if they started to play the one we rehearsed, and they better, it would probably be Make Love with a Guitar. And I wouldn't be surprised if Perry Como sang it. Make love with a guitar If you shouldn't meet us, sweet senorita Romance with a guitar And when you find her the show lost its time slot against CBS's Gateway to Hollywood. It went off the air on February 23, 1941, but was revived from New York in June of 1943. Now submitters won $25 in a carton of Raleigh's and $50 for beating the band. Packs of Raleigh's were sent to servicemen in the war effort. The show went off the air for good on September 6th, 1944.
As I can make out, a lot of you good people seem to be searching these days for a new breakfast food that stays deliciously crisp in milk or cream. Am I right? Well, then, ladies and gentlemen, consider your search over for good. The kind of cereal you've been wanting is waiting for you at the grocery store right now. It's called Kicks. That's right. K I X Kicks. And it's a swell new ready to eat corn cereal popped into tiny round bubbles and toasted a crisp, delicious golden brown. Crisp? Why, these tiny tantalizing bubbles are made to stay crisper than any ordinary flat flake cereal on the market. Even the last delicious spoonful is delightfully crisp and crunchy right down to the last swell golden bubble. Try Kicks, will you? Above everything else, Kicks stays crisp. <laughs> We barge into our second load of questions with only one person having beat the band so far with Elmo Tanner ahead to collect the money in the big bass drum at the end of the program. Now, on this session, boys, we'll start with a loud rah-rah and then get into this question from Miss Cecily Warner of the Bronx, New York. Here it is. Your father built the stadium for the college, and because the football coach can't risk offending him, you make the first string squad of the college football team. Now, what song title tells you what you have? It's from a, from a show, from a musical comedy. Your father built the stadium for the college, and because the football coach can't risk offending him, you make the first string squad of the college football team. What song title tells you what you have? Does anybody know the question slipping by? I'm sorry, gentlemen, the answer is varsity drag. That's how you got on the team, you dopes. All right, and all of them rise as one and throw 50 cents in the drum. Good enough? All throw 50 cents. <laughs> In the drum to be collected by the winner at the end of the program, and Miss Cecily Warner of the Bronx, New York, uh, receives $20 in cash, a minimum, plus a whole case of kicks. That's a lot of kicks, 24 big packages, but the new crisp assured kick package. So when I first started, I did all kinds of acts. When things were at their lowest ebb, when I was 27 years old, after doing about 20 acts. I finally got so, you know, I had to change my name every week. I couldn't get a job <laughs> with the same name twice. And then I met Gracie yeah. when I was 27. Honeymoon? We went to Cleveland, and uh, we were booked there at Keith's Cleveland. And we had three days off in Cleveland. And we arrived in the hotel at 5 o'clock in the morning. And we got married at 7. But we didn't get a room because we sat in the lobby for two hours. Because if you get a room before 7, you had to pay for an extra day. So we sat there for two hours and got married at 7 o'clock and checked in. And our honeymoon was at the hotel for three days. And then we opened Cleveland. And we were married for 38 years. What made it so good? We didn't work at it. Uh, the uh, Gracie didn't marry me because I was a great lover. She married me for laughs. I got more laughs in bed with Gracie than I did when I played Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> what made us a good combination, really, was the fact that I had talent. But I didn't have it on the stage. I had it off the stage. But I would have been nothing without Gracie. All the talent that I had rubbed off Gracie's performance. Gracie was a fine actress. In other words, Gracie was not a comedian.
By the spring of 1941, George Burns and Gracie Allen had been married for 15 years and on radio for nine. Their program had been officially called The Burns and Allen Show since the fall of 1936, and they'd spent time on both NBC and CBS. Unhappy with their Friday time slot on CBS, they moved back to NBC for Hormone Meets on Mondays at 7.30. Jimmy Wallington announced, and Artie Shaw's band provided the orchestra. But their vaudeville-style show was beginning to show its age. In January of 1941, their rating had slipped to 14.8. While they pondered what to do, they took to the air with a March 17, 1941 episode. From New York, the George Burns and Gracie Allen Show for Hormel and Spam. George and Gracie. Spam, whoa boy. Spam, what joy. George Burns, Gracie Allen. On the show when his orchestra The singing glee with a smoothie sweet To start the fun Here's Jimmy Wellington Another Monday night at your house, and time for Burns and Allen, and time for you to discover the way women all over the country have learned how to give the family a breakfast that is different. Serve Spam fried. Spam is tender, tasty meat, a perfect blend of sweet, juicy pork shoulder meat and ham cooked to a savory goodness. Made only by Hormel, Spam is packed in a handy can, so all you do is open it, cut off slices of Spam, and fry quickly in a hot pan. Serve sizzling hot with eggs or a stack of wheat cakes. And you'll start the family off in the morning with a meal that sticks to the ribs. Try Spam Fried, the quickest, tastiest breakfast you've had in many a day. But start right and get the real thing. Be sure to ask your food dealer for S-P-A-M, Spam. Here, your two delightful spam stars, George and Gracie. Thank you, thank you, very, very much. First of August, in the middle of July, the afternoon was wet and the morning well, was dry. Well, Gracie, you're in a very, very gay mood tonight. Gay mood? Well, sure, I'm in a gay mood. Everybody's in a gay mood today. Today's the day. Today's the day. St. Patrick's Day. The same. Most wonderful day in the year, and I'm not saying that because I'm Irish. Oh, no, 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 no. Because I'm only Irish on my mother and father's side. I say. <laughs> only on your mother and father's yeah, side. Yeah, and that goes for them, too. I see what you mean, yeah. Oh, I can just see my uncle tonight with his top hat and his frock coat looking into the mirror to see if his black eyes aren't straight. First on the 31st of August in the middle of July. July. I'll bet your family was in good spirits tonight. Oh, and vice versa. <laughs> oh, and George. 
George, I marched in the Fifth Avenue Parade today. It was the St. Patrick's Day Parade, you know. I know, you know. I was born in New York. I've seen <laughs> oh, those parades. Oh, boy. What excitement. Every year you have those parades. Yeah, what excitement. Born what here, music, you know, What yes. glamour. What bargains at Bergdorf Goodman's window. What crowds. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Bergdorf Goodman's window? Yeah, what crowds. Even, even, even the parade didn't stop you from window shopping? Oh, no. Oh, and this is kind of cute, George. A floor walker was peeking out of the window, and he was flirting with me. Flirting with him? Uh-huh. Well, I sort of looked at him, and he winked back at me. And, he uh, winked back at you. Yes. I see. And you know he looked you just. You didn't wink at him first. No, 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 no. Did you ever wank at anybody? No. 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 no he he just looked at me and. Uh, you know who he looks like? Hmm. He looks like that movie star with a big mouth. You know Joey Green. He was sort of tall. Joey and, Green? Yes, he was sort Tracy, of tall. I say it's Joey Brown. Not on St. Patrick's Day. Was on the thirty-first of August in the middle of July. So you were in the parade today, huh? Oh yes. And it stopped at 57th Street, and we had a two-hour demonstration. two-hour demonstration? Yes. Uh, there was a traffic light there, and every time it turned green, we cheered. I see what you yes. mean, yes, yes. And every time it turned red, we booed. You booed? We had more Gracie, fun. I'll bet, and... I'll bet there must have been a lot of booze. Oh, no, no booze. Nobody was drinking. Was on the first of August in the, the middle of July. July. Oh, no booze. Oh, stop, Gracie. I'm getting so hoarse, I can hardly talk above a whiskey. Yes. Oh. oh. Imagine, George. Do you Hennessy Let... what I mean? George, just imagine. That's a pretty little... star joke. <laughs> just imagine. And another joke later that I use for chaser. For chaser. <laughs> George, just imagine little me of all people leading such a big parade. Mm. Eighty thousand Irishmen following me. Seventy-nine thousand were policemen. I see what you mean. Mm, there Gracie, was with the Gracie, Gracie, in the first place, I don't believe you were leading the parade. Oh no. Oh no. Uh, well. Oh, I wasn't exactly leading the parade. I was sort of up in front, more like in the middle. Oh, in the middle? Well, more toward the end, sort of like last. Like last, yes, yes. yes. It was a great parade, they tell me. I'm sorry I missed it. You missed it? On the 31st of August in oh, the stop, middle of... stop, Well, I Listen. didn't exactly miss it. What happened was, I was on the sidewalk, and there was a little fellow who couldn't see the parade, so I put him on my shoulder. A little, a little fellow? Yeah, Mayor LaGuardia. And he couldn't see the parade. Wait a minute. Uh, so Mayor LaGuardia? Yeah, the 31st of August in the middle of July. Look, I've had enough of this parade and enough of the song. And, Judge, during the parade, there were men selling shamrocks, green ice cream, furniture, clay pots, They were canes. selling furniture? Yeah, a man came up to me and he said, he said, he says, lady, will you give me 25 cents for a bed? And I said to him, I said, I said, now listen to me, Gracie, my good man. Just a second. If I you said, don't mind pausing, I have a line. Well. A very big line. Well, Gracie, anyway, the man was a panhandler. He was only handling beds. Oh, he didn't have any pens. Well, I couldn't tell. He had on a long overcoat. All right, please, please. Say, Gracie, whenever you meet a panhandler, why don't you do what I do? I just brush them off. Well, Jimmy, with your mustache, you can do it. (laughs) No, what I mean is, Gracie, I don't give him any cash. Now, just the other day, I met a man who said, Mr. I'm starving. Would you help me? Oh, isn't that silly? Why should you help him starve? <laughs> I didn't, Gracie. I didn't. I just reached in my pocket, opened my wallet, and gave him a can of Spam. You keep Spam in your wallet? Oh, sure. It doesn't need refrigeration. Mm. Well, keep on with this wallet. Another joke like that, and this program, Bill Fold Up. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, after That's the parade... That's chaser. That's the chaser. <laughs> Well, anyway, after the parade, Artie Shaw took me home, and we were sitting in the living room, and I said, Artie, 
Artie Shaw took you home? Yes, and I said, Artie... Didn't I tell you to break up this romance? Yes, and I said, Artie... Oh, stop with that, Artie. <laughs> Artie, were you out with Gracie again last night? Sure, it was on the 31st of August. Oh, fine, fine. Gracie, try to get this through that silly head of yours. You've got to split this thing up. Business and romance don't mix. Well, I, I guess you're right, George. You just can't mix business with romance. Well, it's about time you realize that. So, we'll take the romance and give you the business. Hello. Hello. Well, I give up. It was on the 31st of August in the middle of July. Is that the right key? The afternoon was wet and the morning it was dry. You might as well finish it. I met a fair young lady sitting under an old oak tree. Pretty, pretty, pretty. And devil a word I said to her. Uh-huh. And the same she said to me. Well, well, I didn't know you could dance, Gracie. Well, George, it looks like you and Gracie are washed up for good. Brother, ever since she and Artie started to say, Plow, I knew you were a dead duck. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy, I'd better break that romance up. It's lasted longer than the snow on the streets in New York. <laughs> and I know how to break it up. I'll use system number three. System number three? What's that? The old sympathy gag. Oh. It's bound to work with Gracie. Watch. <laughs> Gracie. Well, just a minute. Oh, that was wonderful, Artie. But the next time you hug me, I wish you'd take the clarinet out of your mouth. <laughs> what is it, George? Gracie, uh, I've got something to say to you, and please try to understand. I want you to know it's not because I'm jealous. We've been together for years, and you just can't tear down everything that we've built up in just one day. Oh, well, how long will it take? <laughs> Gracie, remember the first time I met you? Mm-hmm. We were just kids then. That's right. You'll have to admit I wasn't selfish. If I had anything, didn't you always get it? Yeah, until I was vaccinated. <laughs> uh, remember when I took you to the ice cream parlor and we had a strawberry soda? Mm-hmm. You may not believe it, but that day I fell in love. Really? I felt so silly, I... Couldn't look at the soda clerk. It was love at first sight. Oh, I don't blame you, George. He was a very cute soda clerk. <laughs> no, no, no. I I mean, I fell in love with you, Gracie. Oh, so that's why you paid for my soda. <laughs> and, Gracie, that childhood romance ripened into... Well, it isn't just friendship. It isn't just a passing fancy. It isn't just a partnership. Do you know what it is? Oh, does it hang from the season of ceiling and whistle? Does it hang from the season and whistle? No, ceiling, ceiling. Gracie, boys, a little soft music. Maybe that'll help. Thanks, fellas. Gracie, remember that little tea room on 6th Avenue that we used to go to? The one where they have the candlelight and the gypsy music? Yeah, that's the place. Oh, it makes my heart beat faster when I think of it. Oh, I see. You still remember it. Remember it? I was there last night with Artie. Hello. Hello. All right, boys. Stop it. I've had enough. Gracie, don't you understand? 
I've been talking to you until I'm blue in the face. Oh, please, George Green. It's St. Patrick's Day. Oh, yes. Well, I'm going outside. I've got another system. I'll go with you, George. I want to get you some tonic. Tonic? Why? To fix up your system. Hmm. Oh, poor George. I hope he doesn't jump off the Empire State Building. Yeah, wouldn't that be awful? He hasn't got a, a cold and he might catch cold. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Senor Shaw, would you like some advice? What kind of advice? Well, if I were in your place, and if you take my advice, I will be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you and Miss Allen elope? But, uh, Senor Lee, if I elope with Artie, who'll take care of the band? Let them get their own girls. <laughs> there, Artie, I think Senor Lee's got a cute idea. Let's elope just this once, huh? Well, look, we'll elope from the El Morocco tonight. It's just the place. It's on the ground floor, so we won't need a ladder. El Morocco? Why not the store club? Store club? Well, I'd maybe in a year. <laughs> hey, listen, everybody, this'll kill you. What? Gotcha. I just overheard George call up a theatrical agency, and he asked him to send over an actress to pretend she's George's girlfriend. Well, Why? To make love to George and make Gracie jealous. Well, say that's a swell idea. And I'll bet she'll get jealous, too. She's probably a very jealous type if it's the same Gracie Allen. Oh, pardon me, it's me. <laughs> Listen, Jimmy, I know what we can do. Let's double-cross George and cancel the girl. Double-cross George? Yep, and I can get a girl to take her place. Oh, gee, that would be a swell surprise for George. Hey, look, wait a minute. Oh, I've got just the girl. Wallington, go out and call Stillman's Jim. Stillman's Jim? Yeah, yeah, this dame happens to be a lady wrestler. A lady wrestler? Yeah, just ask for grappling Gertie. Okay. A lady wrestler? I've never seen a lady wrestler. Oh, I hope he falls for her. You know, I know once in Cleveland... Well, I'm back. I... What are you two talking about? Mm, nothing's on the 31st of August in the middle of July. The afternoon was wet. Ah, the morning it was dry. I talked to a fair young lady just now on the telephone. And she's coming here from Stillman's gym. And she will break your ball. Oh, George Burns soon understood vaudeville was dead, and a second generation of radio listeners expected a situation comedy. Burns and Allen would transform their show in 1942 and remain on radio through 1950. They did wonderful things. <laughs> those days, and not all the stories are apocryphal. They're true. Uh, they, the craziest are true. They undressed Bill Stern once, you know that Oh, story. yes, I was there. Bill Stern was one of the great sportscasters of all times, and he was at NBC, I think, at yeah. the time, and somebody went out and, to a studio tour, and they, while he's on the mic, they yes. removed his trousers. Oh, yes. Two guys, now, there's nothing he can do. He is on the that air. That was so Frank he, Reddick. Did. They're yes. pulling his trousers yeah. down, and he's saying, in the meantime, the score on the Browns. Right. They pulled his trousers off. Now they go out into the hall. And there's a studio tour and say, by the way, you better drop by 8-H. Stern's doing the sports. <laughs> and all these people walked by the window where he was sitting there in his shorts doing his thing. <laughs> Wonderful things like that. 
Setting the script on fire was an old device, wasn't it? Too yes, hard? and then we did, uh, we used to do a lot of shows in front of an audience, all dressed up in evening clothes. I never knew quite why. Give it a yes, dramatic yes, thing, flair, you know, the Philip Morris hour and things like that. And uh, we had a very dramatic director called Charles Martin, who used to give very dramatic cues and was, he was, you know, the Toscanini of the radio so the directors. Would be aware he's and there. he'd see him in his dinner jacket doing all of this. I used to repeatedly pretend to drop my script and lose my pages before it came to my time in order to spoil his act. You see, because I'd drop all the pages and we'd all be picking them up saying, oh, that isn't it, must be this, and so on. And then while he was looking away, I'd get the real script out of my pocket, you see. That but, could be but, heart attack time. Yeah, heart attack time. But he gave us a rough time during rehearsals, so we felt he had it coming to us. But it was very funny sponsors in those days. Over and over again, radio actors would be barred forever, not allowed ever again to work on a show because it was a camel show and they opened up a package of Chesterfields or something. That's how seriously they took it at that, yes, at that time. Just the package in your hand, blackballed forever. There's in radio, a medium where nobody could see anything. I remember once when I was in radio in the Midwest, a favorite device there was for the because we didn't have a news editing staff or anything. We would just, you know, pull it off the teletype and the AP or UP coming on the yellow sheets of paper, and the radio announcer, Ed knows this, would tear it off, and you go into the news, and you read what the stories are. They would type in, they would get a, a sheet, and in the middle of the news, they would type in some horrendous, obscene story <laughs> that you didn't know the end of it until yeah. you were about halfway through, and then, of course, your eyes would drop down, and you'd say, in um, oh. Cedar Rapids, Iowa today, Mr. William Scranton went into the barn, and all of a sudden, you'd see what's coming. <laughs> And you say, we'll be back to that story in a moment, but first, you'd... <laughs> terrible things like oh, that. Yes. But you would be halfway through the story before you realized you'd been handed. G-O-L-G-A-T-E, Colgate presents Bill Stern with a Colgate sports newsreel. Bill Stern, the Colgate shape cream man, is on the air. Bill Stern, the Colgate shape cream man, with stories rare. Take his advice and you'll look keen, you'll get a shave that's smooth and clean. You'll be a Colgate brushless fan. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bill Stern bringing another Colgate Sports Newsreel. Our guest tonight is the lovely Hollywood movie star, Miss Constance Bennett. But first, real one, portrait of a failure. This is the story of a boy who wanted to be a great athlete. His name was Charles Zimmy. And ever since he could remember, little Charles Zimmy had loved sports. As the years passed... Charles Zimmy tried one sport after another, but he failed at all of them until one day he took up wrestling, and he was pretty good at that, too. Only he wasn't quite good enough. Charles realized he'd never make a great wrestler, and so he gave this sport up. But he was all the more determined to someday find some sport in which he could make a great name for himself. One day, Charles Zimmy tried sailing. He'd always liked the water, and if there was one thing he thought he could do, it was to sail a boat. Charles was no better in this than he was in other sports. In fact, one day in a sailboat race, his boat tipped over, and Charles had a swim to shore. But that gave Charles an idea. Why not try the sport of swimming? He liked to swim, and what's more, he was pretty good at it. And so it was that Charles Zimmy dropped all other sports, decided to concentrate on becoming a great swimmer. As the years passed by, Charles swam more and more often. He was determined that before he was too old, he'd at least set one American swimming record. People kidded Charles about his ambition. They laughed at him behind his back. But one day, strange as it seems, Charles Zimmy publicly announced that he was going to swim the whole length of the Hudson River, starting at Albany and ending at New York City. People couldn't believe that he really meant to try it. Not only was this a distance of 147 miles, a distance far greater than anyone had ever dreamed of swimming, 
But the Hudson River was a rough, vicious river in which to swim any distance at all. It was incredible. How could Charles Simi, a man almost 40 years old, do what no one else had even dared try to do? Nevertheless, on August the 25th, 1937, true to his word, Charles Zimmy entered the Hudson River at Albany, New York, to begin his endurance swim. He started poorly. The water was very cold. Ahead of him lay 147 miles of the treacherous river. Thousands lined the riverbanks to see him try, and they were amazed at his stamina. At the end of five hours, he'd gone six miles. Charles Zimmy swam on. He passed the 20-mile mark, then the 25-mile mark, then the 50. Charles Zimmy had now been in the water 54 hours. People weren't laughing at him anymore. They were wondering how long he could keep it up. At the end of 80 hours, Charles Zimmy had reached the 75-mile mark. Now he was over halfway. The water was getting rougher all the time. As Charles passed the 100-mile mark, he almost fainted from sheer exhaustion. But he kept on and on. They'd laughed at him, had they? All right, well, he'd show them. The cruel pounding of the water was taking a terrible toll. But somehow he did keep going. Now he'd reached the 130-mile mark. There was only 17 more miles to go. Each stroke was sheer torture, but Charles gritted his teeth and vowed he'd make it. And make it he did. After being in the water five full days, Charles Zimmy had succeeded in swimming the entire 147 miles down the Hudson River from Albany to New York City to set an all-time American swimming record. And that's the story. Oh, yeah. There's one thing I forgot to tell you. Charles Zimmy, the man who swam that 147 miles, is a cripple. You see, Charles Zimmy has no legs. Bill Stern's Colgate Newsreel first took to the air on December 5, 1937, over NBC's Blue Network. Born on July 1, 1907, Stern began in vaudeville, and by 1931, he was the assistant stage manager at the Roxy Theater, and later Radio City in New York. In 1934, he got the role of broadcaster for NBC's Friday Night Fights. Stern became one of the most famous sportscasters in the country. Four years later, he partnered with MGM for their News of the Day reel. Stern's career flourished, despite a 1935 car accident, which injured him severely enough that his left leg had to be amputated just above the knee. By March 17, 1944, his Colgate program was running over NBC on Fridays at 10.30 p.m. Eastern. Constance Bennett was the guest on this broadcast. Real 2. You just heard the story of a great endurance swimming champion. Now let me tell you about another kind of swimming champion, a speed swimmer. His name is Buster Crabb, and he's the sensational Olympic swimming champion who held 16 world championships and 35 national titles. Many times Buster Crabb shaved seconds off his own swimming records, and at shaving, too. Buster's a speed demon and a champ, with some help, of course. You're right, Bill. Buster Crabb credits Colgate Brushless Shave Cream for his championship shave. He says... Thanks to Colgate Brushless, I've now perfected my shaving style, and I'm sure I set up an unofficial shaving record every morning. Why, I just spread on Colgate Brushless straight from the jar, go over once lightly with my razor, and I'm on the last lap. Then I dunk my face in razor, and I'm under the tape for the fastest, smoothest, easiest, most comfortable shave I've ever had. Signed, Buster Crab. Now, that's what I call testing on the old home ground, because, men, you've got to try Colgate Brushless on your own face before you'll know what a real championship shave is like. 
You see, Colgate Brushless Shave Cream is a cinch for you men with tough whiskers and naturally dry, sensitive skin. This light, fluffy cream stays moist and active, keeps your whiskers soft and shavable, so your razor can cut them off quick, clean, and close with no after-irritation. Now, those are real dividends for men who want the utmost in shaving speed and comfort. So here's my offer. You try Colgate Brushless Shave Cream, then if you don't agree it gives you the best shave you ever had, send the top of the carton to me, Bill Stern, Kara Colgate, Jersey City, Zone 2, New Jersey, for double your money back. Now, could anything be fairer than that? Then get yourself a big victory jar of Colgate Brushless Shave Cream and get it tonight. Real three. Colgate's camera close-up of Constance Bennett. Here is one of Hollywood's brightest stars, the lovely and talented Miss Constance Bennett. You all know what a great movie star Constance Bennett is. But do you also know that she's an expert bowler, an expert swimmer, an expert tennis player? Am I? But why, certainly you are, Connie. I happen to know that you were captain of your school basketball team, and you used to own a racing stable, and you reached the semifinals in the Hollywood tennis tournament, and... Look, Bill, may I say something? Why, certainly, Connie. Go right ahead. Well, supposing we take your statements one by one. I was captain of my school basketball team, only um, we didn't win any games. As for my racing stable, it consisted of exactly one horse. And as for my reaching the semifinals in the Hollywood tennis tournament, you forgot to mention that my partner was the great Ellsworth Vines. But, Bill, I am about to try something that I don't think any woman has tried before. Well, what's that, Connie? I'm going to produce and star in my own movies for PRC Pictures. Well, that will make you the first woman who's both the producer and star of our own pictures. And you already have a flourishing cosmetic business. Connie, aren't you ever satisfied? Well, I might be satisfied if after I make my first picture it's a hit. Well, what's your first picture going to be about? Well, we haven't decided definitely yet, Bill. But I'm looking for a new leading man. Well, Connie, why didn't you say so sooner? Now, I don't like to talk about myself, but making pictures right up my alley. Why, only in the last year I've been in such pictures as the pride of the Yankees. We've never been licked and staged our canteen. Just to mention a few. Well, that's fine, Bill. But my leading man must be um, dramatic, romantic. And ecstatic. Aha, that lets me out, Connie, because I'm only on the beam when I scream about Colgate shave cream. All of which goes to show, I know I'd better go. Thank you, that's right. Good luck and good night, Constance Bennett. Good night, Bill. And to you boys who've just returned from overseas in Halloran Hospital, good night and God bless you. Ah, thanks. Good night, Connie. Good night, Bill. Real four. Profile of a song. Today is St. Patrick's Day, hence it's particularly appropriate that we now tell the story, for this is a St. Patrick's Day story. Our story begins shortly after the turn of the century, when two brothers named John and Michael Shea enrolled at Notre Dame University. They were as Irish as their Irish names. As soon as John and Michael Shea entered Notre Dame, they were immediately impressed with the fighting spirit of the Notre Dame football team. True, neither John nor Michael Shea was a football player, for both were studying music. But even musicians can be ardent football fans, and these brothers were. This was the year 1903. It was the very first year a Notre Dame football team had ever gone through a whole season without losing a single game. Well, that called for a celebration. But when it came time to celebrate, both John and Michael Shea were amazed to find that Notre Dame had no victory song to celebrate with. Being musicians, they immediately set out to remedy this. That night, the two brothers wrote a song. Into this song, they poured out their love for Notre Dame, their pride in their unbeaten football team. They call their song the Notre Dame Fighting Irish Victory March. At first, it was only sung out on the college campus at South Bend, but soon it began to be sung by Irishmen all over the country, and it spread like wildfire. 
That year it became the most popular Irish song in all America. People everywhere were singing. Cheer, cheer for old Notre Dame. Wake up the echoes cheering her name. While her loyal sons are marching onward to victory. That song reached such great heights of popularity that people who'd never even heard of Notre Dame went around humming its strains. And Irishmen everywhere sang it the loudest. For after all, wasn't it the song of a fighting Irish? In fact, this song became so popular that a famous New York theatrical producer named Chauncey Alcott, who was then about to present an Irish musical play, decided to use this very song as the finale in his play. Since the play was to be all about St. Patrick's Day, Chauncey Alcott thought that surely this popular song of the Irish would be most appropriate. And Chauncey Alcott's show was a big success, too. However, the morning after the play opened, the dramatic critics found one fault. The New York Times said, Chauncey Alcott's new Irish musical play, which opened last night, had one serious mistake. Mr. Alcott uses the currently popular Notre Dame Fighting Irish Victory Song for his finale. Granted that the song has become an Irish favorite, it is still a college marching song and not a love song such as this play needs. Chauncey Alcott read the New York Times Dramatic Critics Review and realized that that very critic was right. After all, his play was a love story about St. Patrick's Day, and it did need a love song, not a college marching song. But where could he find such a love song? That night in desperation, Chauncey Alcott decided to try and write such a song himself. First, the melody came to him. Now, now if he could only find words to go with that tune. Finally, had it all down on paper. It was an Irish love song, just what his play needed. That night, Chauncey Alcott took the Notre Dame Fighting Irish Victory March out of his Broadway show and replaced it with his new Irish love song that he'd just written. The song was an immediate success. It became one of the greatest Irish love songs ever written. For you see, this Irish love song that Chauncey Alcott had just written was My Wild Irish Rose. My Wild Irish Rose The dearest flower that grows And so... Because the Notre Dame football song didn't fit into a St. Patrick's Day number of a Broadway show, My Wild Irish Rose was written. But that's not the end of the story. You see, Chauncey Alcott, who wrote My Wild Irish Rose, for a St. Patrick's Day number, died some years later on St. Patrick's Day. of a love song that was written to replace Notre Dame's football favorite. Real Five, Charles McCartney. Calling all lather shavers. Cream, a lather shave of chance. Lather cream works into countless more to soften up the toughest whiskers, right speedy shave the first time over without snagging or pulling. Remember, two out of three barbers you ask, can you do better than follow the expert's choice? Use Colgate Rapid Shave Cream, the shave cream of champions. And now, back to Bill Stern. Real Six. Colgate's candid camera catches the story behind the story. Exclusive New York City, New York. American prisoners of war just returned from Germany reveal that Germany's huge sports stadium where the 1936 Olympics were held is now being used as a concentration camp for American prisoners. But, but it is camouflaged to look like an ammunition dump so that American planes will be fooled into bombing American prisoners. And that's the 3 mark for tonight. Next Friday night, we'll be back same time, same stations with another Colgate Sports Newsreel. Our guest next Friday evening will be the Long Ranger. So be sure and be with us at our usual time next Friday night 
when we present in person as our guest one of the most famous stars in radio, the Lone Ranger. And until then, I'll be seeing you on the screen in the News of the Day newsreel at your favorite Lowe's or Associated Theaters. And now, until next Friday night at the same time, this is Bill Stern wishing you all a good, good night. Bill Stern, the Colgate Shave Cream Man, is on his way. Bill Stern, the Colgate Shave Cream Man, had lost to say. He told you tales of sports heroes, the inside dope he really knows. So listen in next Friday night. C-O-L-G-A-T-E. May I have your attention, Mr. and Mrs. America? Have you seen any of them yet? I mean the young fellows back from the wars, the ones without a leg, an eye, or an arm. Thanks to sulfur drugs, they and many others have been saved from days and weeks of pain, even loss of their lives. You can help provide these wonder drugs simply by saving your used kitchen fats. So pour every drop of used kitchen fat into a tin container, not glass. Take it to your butcher, and he'll give you four cents a pound, plus two meat ration points free. The used kitchen fat you save and sell can help save a life. Thank you. Miss Constance Bennett appeared on this program courtesy of PRC Pictures. This is the National Broadcasting Company. After nearly 16 years with NBC, Stern switched to ABC for three final seasons. While at ABC, Stern was a regular panelist on the game show, The Name's the Same. Kirby Bevins, host for Neo Amsterdam News. My father disappeared six years ago. I've had amnesia about our final moments until now. Boy, was he irritating. I suspect he ghosted, literally. I could be wrong, but I did wake up 17 times last night, screaming after he said this in a recurring nightmare. Did you see that? Rippling in the air. Was he murdered or worse? Great, now they're on to me. Go to hellgatecity.com. Did you start out to be a singer first or an actor first? I started out as a singer. I was the new singer on the show replacing Kenny Baker. That's why the fact that they brought in Verna Felton to play the part of my mother, who was the buffer between myself and Jack Benny, because I was so inexperienced. Remember, I was fresh out of college. I'd never been in show business. I'd loved singing, been a singer in college in the Glee Club. And I had appeared on a, several radio shows in New York City, where I was born and raised. Been on the Larry Clinton Saturday Night Campus show three times. Jack Benny's most famous Irish tenor, Dennis Day, was born on May 21st, 1916 in New York City and raised in the Throgs Neck section of the Bronx. Day graduated from Cathedral Preparatory Seminary and attended Manhattan College, where he sang in the Glee Club. Eventually, he made his way to radio. You had to have something that he could magnify. In other words, when after Kenny Baker left, we couldn't find a singer. Benny, he always wanted a tenor. That's what Benny wanted to fit in there. So we finally saw this picture. We went into the Bronx, and McNulty is his real name. And I went over, and uh, we had I had dinner over at his house. 
and his old man, we call him Tiptoes McNulty. He was rushing the can, you know, Schaefer's beer. And at the first rehearsal, Jack looked over and he said, Dennis, and Dennis said, yes, please. Well, that was it. That was, he, see, he had to find something that he could magnify. I had taken air checks of the songs I had sung on that show. And I happened to, after Kenny Baker left the Benny Show, somebody suggested I send it over to Jack's agent. By good fortune, God bless her, Mary Livingston happened to hear my record. She liked it. She brought it to Jack, and she persuaded him to audition me. After the audition was over, Jack said, well, that sounds pretty good, but uh, we'll let you know. And about two or three days later, I got a round trip to ticket to go out to California on the Golden State Limited on the train, the Freddie Laker of the trains, you know, no frills, no nothing. And I got out here and I auditioned for his writers and producer. After that, I was told to wait around for a while because Jack was going up to the uh, World's Fair in San Francisco on Treasure Island. Oh, yes. And I did that. I waited around. They gave me no money, mind you told me to wait around. I had to send home to my mother and dad for some money. This is your real mom, not Verna Feldman. That's right. <laughs> and then when I, uh, after he got back, I got a call from him to come down to his office. And it was at that meeting that I knew that I was going to be the new singer on his radio program. And, of course, it wasn't when I signed the contract, mind you, but when he took back the other half of the train ticket. Hmm. And that was true. <laughs> well, that's great. In fact, the other half, well, the office did, you know. And uh, But I stayed with him all those years. Dennis Day made his Benny debut on October 8th, 1939. It was actually a five-year contract, but I had to make good in two weeks. And if I didn't, he had the option to drop me. Then the first year, he could pick me up every 13 weeks. He did, and I stayed with him, as I say, up until... Uh, well, I stayed about four years, and then I went in the Navy during World War II. That's when they had Larry Stevens. That's right. He had Larry Stevens. And after I got out, I went back with Jack, and I had my own radio program at that time, The Day in the Life of Dennis Day. During World War II, Day enlisted in the Navy. He made his return on the St. Patrick's Day episode, March 17, 1946. Ladies and gentlemen, today, March 17th, is St. Patrick's Day. As you all know, St. Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland. So today, we bring you a man who was run out of Waukegan, Jack Benny. You said man there, anyway. Thank you, thank you. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking. And Don, for your information, I wasn't run out of Waukegan. It was merely a request by the city fathers and mine. And being a sharp guy, I took the hint and two shirts and left. Well, let's not talk about me. After all, this is St. Benny's, I mean, St. Patrick's Day. That's why I'm wearing this shamrock in my lapel. Shamrock? Yes. That's a moth that took a bite out of that $12 suit and turned green. Hey, right, don't be funny. This is a very good suit. Taste it. I mean, feel it. Anyway, why aren't you wearing something green today? I am wearing something green. See? Oh, yes, yes. What is it? It's that gold bracelet you gave me for Christmas. <laughs> Mary, that's an old joke. All I know is I polish my other bracelets. This one, the gardener takes care of. Well, that's appreciation for. After all, Mary, it wasn't easy to get that bracelet. 
I spent over three hours at that claw machine. And now, ladies and gentlemen... <laughs> good, I didn't know it was going to be that good. I'm going to say that. Say, Jackson. What? You're talking about St. Patrick's Day. Did I ever tell you the one about that friend of mine who got an Irish car? An Irish car? Yeah, every time you blow the horn, it plays Ireland must be heaven because my motor came from there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Harris, you're the Barry Fitzgerald of the Bobby Sox. <laughs> well, pull out your garters and get out of here, will you? Put on your garters, right? He always tries to run Say, one... Jack. What? Jack, since this is St. Patrick's Day, don't you think we ought to do this a little... This program is starting out like we had no rehearsals at all. You want to know something? We did it. <laughs> Everybody walks in any time they want. Hey, Jackson, they holler. What is it? What, what is well, it? Well, Jack, this being St. Patrick's Day, don't you think we ought to do a little play for our Irish listeners? Well, we're doing better than that, Don. Tonight, for the first time since his release from the Navy, Dennis Day, the smiling Irish songbird, will be back with us. Oh, so the kid's coming back, huh, Jackson? Yep. Gosh, Jack, Dennis has been gone for two years. I'll bet the Navy has changed him a lot. I bet it has to. Anyway, he ought to be here by now. I think I'll call his house and see what's keeping him. Say, Mabel, what is it, guys, Phil? <laughs> Mr. Benny's line is flashing. Yeah, I wonder what Bloomer Girl wants now. <laughs> I'll find out. Hello, Mr. Benny. Huh? Dennis Day? What's his number? Okay, I'll call you back when I get him. Say, Mabel, did you hear Mr. Benny's program last week? Yeah, Ray Moline was on it. Gosh, he's wonderful, even if he is the lost weekend. <laughs> Listen, Mabel, if you think Milan is the lost weekend, you should have a date with Benny. <laughs> Those are my sentiments exactly. You want to know something, Gertrude? What? The contest has been over for six weeks, and I still can't stand him. <laughs> Yeah. You know, Mabel, two weeks ago he asked me to go to the Academy Award ceremonies, but I had another date. Gee, Gertrude, how come Mr. Benny always asked you to all those swanky affairs? Well, why shouldn't he? After all, my mother gave him the best years of her life. <laughs> um, you know, I wouldn't mind going out on a date with Mr. Benny, but he's a sneaky type. <laughs> Sneaky? Yeah, he's the kind who lures an unsuspecting girl into his car, drives her out to a dark spot, pretends he's out of gear, stops the car, and then spends the next two hours talking about his picture. <laughs> it's enough to discourage a person, believe me. <laughs> I'll say. You know, Mabel, I got a confession to make. Once I let Mr. Benny kiss me, why, go to gear shift. <laughs> Say, uh, tell me, Gertrude, what are his kisses like? Well, it's like when you're blowing bubble gum and the bubble collapses against your face. <laughs> uh, well, between you and me, I'd rather have the gum. <laughs> yeah. Dennis Day's number doesn't answer. I'd better tell Blue Eyes about it. Hello? Oh, we'll try him again later, Gertrude. Goodbye. Oh, say, Gertrude, uh, what are you doing tonight? Tomorrow night? Tuesday night? Wednesday night? Thursday night? 
Christmas Eve? <laughs> oh, you're, you're going to visit your mother. Well, don't be surprised when you walk in, sister. <laughs> Goodbye. Well, <laughs> hey, Phil, you know, this is a battery day. Why don't you do something for the occasion, something Irish? I did. I put a harp in my band. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. You got a girl playing it. You know, her fingers must get callous and sore plucking on all those strings. Well, it's her own fault, Jackson. She forgot the bow, so let her do the best she can. <laughs> She's our orchestra leader for ten years now. <laughs> Phil, you don't use it. Come in. I beg your pardon, but hello again. Dennis! 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 Kid, welcome back. Gee, it's good to see you. Gosh, Mary, doesn't he look wonderful? Oh, he sure does. Oh, boy, I never expected this. Are you going to kiss me too, Miss Livingston? <laughs> Why, certainly, Dennis. Doggone, Dennis, I can't get over. You look so mature. You've changed so. Well, sure he's changed, Jackson. This kid's been in the Navy for two years. He's grown up. Yeah, up. <laughs> hmm. About yourself. Did you enjoy your two years in the Navy? I sure did, Miss Livingston. The Navy's wonderful. I went all over the South Pacific and I saw plenty. <laughs> I imagine you did, kid. Say, <laughs> hey, I bet you had a lot of fun, too. Say, Dennis. Dennis, I've been wanting to ask you something. Uh, tell me, kid, uh, how about those waves? That's what made me seasick. <laughs> Yeah, yeah grown up. up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Dennis, I was all over the South Pacific, too, and I ran into some pretty rough seas. In fact, once I was tossed overboard. Oh, I was tossed overboard lots of times. You were? Yeah, but the captain made the fellows cut it out. <laughs> Dennis, the boys kept throwing you overboard. That's terrible. Oh, it wasn't so bad. The Japs kept throwing me back. <laughs> he was a pickle in the middle. Yeah. Say, Dennis, when you first joined the Navy, how did they know how to classify you? I mean, how did they know what rank to give you? Oh, that was easy, Miss Livingston. First, I had to fill out a lot of forms, answer a lot of questions, and then for two days, they gave me a written test. For two days? That must have been quite a test. And after it was all over, they made me an ensign. An ensign? <laughs> an ensign? Yeah. I wonder what they'd have made me if I'd have passed. <laughs> Maybe it's just as well you didn't. We won the war this way. <laughs> well, come on, Dennis. We all want to hear a song. What's it going to be? Well, since today is St. Patrick's Day, I thought I'd sing Danny Boy. Well, that's swell. Go sure. Go right ahead. Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from Glen to in many cases, a, a show would get well on their way before he would even make an appearance. That's true, it. yeah. That's very true. And then he had a, a great facility of mentioning something. I wonder where I put that book or something mm -hmm. like that or where Dennis would be or whatever's going to happen. And all of a sudden... When we were practically to the end of the show, that would come in in another roundabout way <laughs> that made a hilarious ending to the whole thing. He had that great facility. So he was really, 
In the early days when I was with Jack, he used to work with the writers on all the ideas and the dialogue and everything else. And then when we'd come in to read, usually on a Wednesday or Thursday, we'd have our first reading. And after the reading was over, we'd leave and go home. And then they would edit it and tighten it up. And my gosh, every time, that would be 200% better once they worked it mm -hmm. over. And Jack would work. He says, I don't like this. I don't like this. We've got to replace this. Or bring in, you know, new dialogue or let's keep this. But he was a great editor of scripts. This is one of the great sense of comedy that the man had. Not only was uh, an editor, but what a timer, a master timer. He knew how long to milk a laugh and when to stop when it, he had enough or the public had enough. And I shall hear a soft you tread above me. For the remainder of the season, the Jack Benny cast was reunited in its classic 1940s incarnation. It was the last season before Phil Harris took over the Fitch bandwagon with his wife Alice Faye. Because the program aired immediately after Jack's, Phil could generally only take part in the first half of Jack's show before rushing over to broadcast his own. And beginning that October... Dennis Day, too, would get his own show on NBC. sung by Dennis Day. And now... Hey, Mr. Benny, I meant to ask you, how's Mr. Allen? Who? Fred Allen. Well, kid, it was nice seeing you again. <laughs> no, no, Phil. In fact, I'm glad he brought it up. Dennis, I'm happy to tell you that Fred Allen has the same old program, the same old joke, the same oh, old... Oh, wait a minute, Jack. That's not fair. I've heard all of Fred's programs, and they've been very funny. Yeah, Mary, I wouldn't mind if his joke just laid there. But they crawl out of the radio and stain your rugs. <laughs> Program. That just shows what you know, Jackson. I think the funniest thing in radio is Alan's Alley. Oh, you do, huh? Yeah. I think so, too. Oh, you do, eh? I think so, too. Oh, you do, eh? I think Mr. Benny is much funnier than Mr. Allen. I think so, too. <laughs> oh, you do, eh? That was just a short order of Who Do You Love, I Hope, played by Maestro Al Goodman and his 40 men who... This is Studio 6 hey, wait a minute, folks. wait a minute. This glass booth is the control room. Say, just a minute. That little man with the mildew on him is a vice president. Say, wait a minute. What is this? This is a Radio City 60-cent tour. Okay, folks, let's get going. Hey, wait a minute. I got a stowaway here. A stowaway in a tour? Only 15 people paid. Now I got 16. Who would be low enough to sneak into a tour to save 60 cents? There's the guy. Hey, you! 
Who, me? Jack Benny. In 1944, Fred Allen had quit the Texaco Star Theater as a battle with high blood pressure forced him off the air. The next fall in 1945, he returned to NBC, Sundays at 8.30 p.m. with The Fred Allen Show, sponsored by Blue Bonnet Margarine and Tenderleaf Tea. With he and Jack Benny back on the same network, the two rekindled their feud. It came to a climax on the May 26, 1946 episode of Fred's show with a sketch entitled, King for a Day. Benny pretended to be a contestant named Myron Proudfoot on Allen's new quiz show. The skit is mostly ad-libbed, and the ending was a surprise to everyone, including Jack Benny. You'll notice that announcer Kenny Delmar is unable to say the final Tenderleaf Tea promo before the program's time ran out. NBC executives were incensed. Allen tried to explain that there was no way to predict how long an audience would laugh. He's a nickel so hard, the E pluribus laughs over the unum. Tell him. Well, Jack, I didn't... Oh, start insulting me after I made a, st a special trip up here just to say goodbye before I leave for Hollywood. Well, Jack, I... All of a sudden, I'm cheap. I won't even eat in the sun. My shadow might ask me for a bite. <laughs> Your shadow has teeth? <laughs> Jack, look. Jack, don't... Get excited. Look, if you're cheap, you're cheap. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> Some people save asparagus ends. It's a hobby. My hobby is not spending. <laughs> well, Jack, if there ever was a time that you and I should not argue, this is the time. What do you mean, this is the time? Well, a lot of, haven't you heard, a lot of the radio programs that have been on for many years have been canceled. They're, they'll not be back on the air next fall. Well, that's radio, Fred. It's dog-eat-dog. Dog. I always say, only the fit survive. Oh, how true. By the way, you, uh, you finished tonight, didn't you? <laughs> yes, sirree. Tonight was my last show of the season. Did your sponsor mention anything about your program coming uh, back in October? Well, no, no, Fred, but we have a mutual understanding. You see, we always sort of... Take it for granted. Oh. The season ends, the sponsor shakes hands with me, and then we... Yipe! <laughs> Jack. Jack, what's, what's wrong? Tonight he didn't shake hands. <laughs> well, that's what happened to the street singer. <laughs> At the end of the year, his sponsor used to wink. One year, he didn't wink. The street singer was back in the street. But Fred, why should my sponsor want to get rid of me? Well, I'm funnier than I was when I started, and I'm getting less money. Really? Some weeks when he's short, I take tobacco. <laughs> I hate well, to get that... these big laughs on your program. I... <laughs> Let's face it, Jack. Radio needs new blood. Who knows? We, we, we may be through. I've been on radio 14 years. They can't throw me aside like an old shoe. But, Jack... 14 years. And now, like an old shoe. But, Jack, you with that hmm and yipe, 14 years is a long time. <laughs> Fred, what has Ma Perkins got that I haven't got? Only longer commercials. <laughs> well, Jack, you know how it is in radio. Today you're a star. Tomorrow, Ralph Edwards is hitting you in the face with a pie. Like an old shoe. Well, cheer up, Jack. At least we have our memories. We've known each other for 30 years. Yep. The first time I met you, Fred, I was just a kid in school. A diller, a dollar, a ten o'clock scholar. You were the only ten o'clock scholar I ever saw with five o'clock shadow. 
could use some of that fuzz today. <laughs> I could use a good joke today, too. <laughs> the next time we met, we were in Fordville, remember? You were doing a musical act. Playing the violin. What a finish I had. When I played Glowworm, my violin lit up. <laughs> With those neon strings, it was beautiful. Fred, remember my encore? Encore? Remember I'd put the violin bow in my teeth, bend the crab, and play Listen to the Mockingbird? And as you bent the crab, two mockingbirds flew out of the back of your pants. I stopped every show. <laughs> Except this one. Remember the closing... Remember the closing... This one stopped five minutes before I got on it. Stopped with Cash Daly. Remember, remember that week in Needles, Arizona, the closing act, Cohen's Camels... Cohen's... No, no, the I don't. The closing act. Jack, how could you forget Cohen's camel? Cohen, I remember. My sponsor told me to forget that other word. <laughs> ah, those were the happy days. The next time I saw you, you were just going into radio. Radio. I remember the morning Marconi called me up. Marconi? Marconi and Singing Sam had a little radio station in a doorway down on the east side. The antenna was a Western Union boy holding a wire. Well, I guess it's... jokes don't fit. No, they don't. The antenna. When did I ever say antenna on my own phone? Go ahead, Fred. Well, it's all over, Jack. We've come to the end of the rainbow. Like an old shoe. Like There it is again. Been on ten minutes already. I've only had it's an old shoe. Antenna. Yeah. You ought to get a boot out of that old shoe by now. Oh, I'm sorry I brought it back in again. It seems like only yesterday I ran into the May Company and said, Mary, stop demonstrating that Brillo. That's another word I don't know. It goes We're on going top to of work. an antenna. A Brillo fits on an antenna. Cheer up, Jack. When, you when you're retired, you can tune in on my program. Your program? You mean you're not getting thrown out of radio, too? Well, why should I? Listen, if my program is old stuff, you with that broken-down Alan's Alley... No, well, wait, I mean my new show. New show? Uh, people don't want entertainment today. A radio show has to give away things. Nylons, iceboxes, automobiles. You mean to stay on the air, you have to give things away? Free? Yes. <laughs> I'll die first. <laughs> Well, not me. I'm auditioning my new program tonight. And you're, Fred, you're giving things away? Tons of stuff. The stranger? What's the difference who gets it? Well, Fred, as long as I'm here in the studio... Well, no, I'm sorry, Jack. Professional... <laughs> Professional people cannot participate. It's a rule. But don't you ever find people on these programs changing their names to... To get something for nothing? Well, occasionally we do catch a phony, but we're on the air. What can we do? Nothing. You you have to give them the merchandise? That's right. Hmm. Now, Mr. Allen, we're ready for your audition. I'll run along, Fred. So long. So long, Jack. Hmm. Giving away things for nothing. Well, all right, Mr. Goodman. Let's try out my new show. How would you like to be king for a day? <laughs> change one of you nobodies into king for a day, the old kingmaker himself, Fred Allen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And good evening. Did all you folks in the audience like those thousand dollar bills you found on your seats when you came in? 
Good. And if you want more, there'll be a big bag of money at the door. On your way out, help yourselves. But the stage is loaded with hundreds of presents for the first man to answer our jumbo jackpot question. He will be king for a day. And here is our first eager contestant. Good evening, sir. What is your name? Abner Plog. Uh, Mr. Plog, how old are you? I'm 98. Nine, 98 years old. And don't pin no orchid onto me. No, uh, no orchid, eh? That's how I lost my wife. On a quiz program? Yeah. My wife was 102. The fella pinned an orchid onto her. I see. The weight of the orchid bent my wife over and snapped her spine. Well, that's too bad. Yeah, my wife won first prize, but she never knew it. Well, all right, Mr. Flogg. Now for our question. You may be king for a day. I don't think I'll last through the day. <laughs> all right, we'll hurry. Tell me, who was the sixth president of the United States? The sixth? There were three names. Mary Margaret McBride? Oh, Awfully sorry, Mr. Flog, but for making such a swell try, here is a gift certificate presented at LaGuardia Airfield, and you will get a brand new B-29 and a polka dot form-fitting parachute. Happy landing, Mr. Flog. And here is our next potential king for a day. Your name, sir? Myron Proudfoot. <laughs> Myron Proudfoot? You look like a chap I know. I'm not interested in your friends. Start giving things away, brother. <laughs> what is your occupation, Mr. Proudfoot? I'm a chaplain in a bakery. What does a chaplain do in a bakery? I put wings on angel cakes. <laughs> How long have you been in the cake business, Mr. Proudfoot? Long enough to know a crumb when I see one. When I see one. Don't get sarcastic, Mr. Proudleg. The name is Proudfoot, and make with the question. All right. Who is the sixth president of the United States? John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams is correct, and Mr. Myron Proudfoot is king for a day. <laughs> Folks, here he is, King Proudfoot. Well, Your Majesty, how do you feel? Never mind how I feel. What do I get? Well, first... <laughs> First, for His Majesty from Schnook Sport Nook, a genuine no-splash beaver board canoe paddle. Here a canoe paddle. Oh, boy. <laughs> and with the compliments of Tiffany's, this chromium pitchfork. For Dave, a four-pronger, and it's all mine. <laughs> and from Hemingway's hardware store, 200 pounds of self-hardening putty for King. Just what I needed. Just what I needed. This is just the beginning, King. King, you are over 35. By two years. Fine. That jumbo cotton, Uncle Jim, for His Majesty. He is over. <laughs> Epi, Epi, that's well, yipe backwards. <laughs> And here, the piston rod from a genuine Baldwin locomotive for His Majesty the King. Small <laughs> locomotive. And here, from Melody Lane Music Shop, this case of 2,000 soybean mandolin picks. These are the mandolins. I just keep pinching myself to believe it. Immediately after this program, Your Majesty will be guest of honor at a banquet at Hamburger Heaven. Tomorrow morning, through the courtesy of the sanitation department, you will be guest conductor on the 11-5 garbage run through the Bronx. <laughs> At night, 
in your ermine robe, you will be whisked by bicycle to Orange, New Jersey, where you will be the judge in a chicken cleaning contest. <laughs> I'm king for a day! And that's not all! There's more? Yes, we're going to start right now to make you look like a king. Sam, of Sam's Super Shoe Shine Stand, is here to brush your shoes. All right, Sam. Sam, watch out for the button. Next, the president of the Busy Bee Hat Cleaners is here to block your hat. Take the king's hat, Mr. Bumble. And change the newspaper and the hat band. <laughs> your suit is a little baggy, king. Boys, take his majesty's coat off. Wait, wait. On our stage, we have a Hoffman pressing machine. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. An expert operating the Hoffman pressing machine will press your trousers. Now, wait a minute. For 15 years I've been waiting to catch you like Alan, this. Alan, you haven't seen the end of me. It won't be long now. I want my pay. Now, if you don't know what day today is. Today is the day to get out the tall glasses. The iced tea season is here. Time to enjoy iced tender leaf tea, one of summer's main attractions. Yes, iced tea is raised to its ultimate best by the use of this richer blend. In fact, the iced tea season has played a big part in making tender leaf tea so famous for flavor. Flavor means more. It's more important through the summer months. So everybody sets out to get all the flavor going, and that leads straight to tender leaf tea for finer flavor and more of it. In spite of melting ice, the richer goodness of tender leaf tea persists. The last swallow of the grass is still delicious, still flavorful tender leaf tea. As summer this comes is out, NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. October, Alan wrote a skit called The Radio Mickadoo about the hucksters of radio, the vice presidents and clerks who are confidentially a bunch of jerks. He was censored by NBC and told he couldn't ad-lib any longer. Alan told reporters censors were the executive fungus that forms on a desk. Shortly thereafter went on air, the network cut him off in the middle of a joke. But now, other disgruntled NBC comedians joined in. Red Skelton mentioned Alan on his show and was immediately cut off, but he kept talking for his studio audience, telling them, You know what NBC means, don't you? Nothing but cuts. Nothing but confusion. Nobody's certain. Bob Hope mentioned Alan and got censored. Finally, Dennis Day took the last shot at NBC on his Day in the Life Wednesday night sitcom. I'm listening to the radio, he said to his girlfriend Mildred. I don't hear anything. I know. Fred Allen's on. NBC announced shortly thereafter that its comedians were free to say whatever they liked. It didn't matter. Fred Allen had finally won. I always found acting boring. Because there's not enough to do. You do it and then you're finished. And now what are you going to do? You know, they would go back to the office to do rewrites and changes and all that kind of stuff. So I would go into the booth and listen 
when I wasn't on in the scene, and then I'd go back to the office and they'd let me sit there with them when they were doing rewrites and cuts. So I got interested in all of it, and when I started working on suspense, Spear asked me, because I was writing suspense in addition to acting on it, I wrote some of them, and I edited a great many of them. And Spear had to go away and he asked me if I wanted to direct it, and I said, yeah, sure. So I directed one, and then the CBS people wanted to do Broadway's My Beat, which had been on in the East. They wanted to move it out here, and they needed a producer-director. Mort Fine, David Friedkin were going to write it, and we cooked up the idea of scoring it with a jazz orchestra and got Sandy Courage for that. I all of a sudden was directing a show every week. Broadway's My Beat, from Times Square to Columbus Circle, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway's My Beat, with Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover. Broadway, it's a neon shriek of despair that claws across the face of night, that tears at the black wind that beats against the silent dust. It's struggle and confusion and the dance of shadows, on a spectacular illuminated with 10,000 fragments of light. It screams, it sobs, it whimpers, it laughs. The face of night has not changed. It's Broadway, my beat. They were waiting, the harbor police. Their launch dancing against the shadows of the curious. Waiting and bound in the veil of mist rising above the river. They were waiting for me. Hiya, Danny. You got here first. Up aboard the launch. Yeah. Okay, Scabella, let her go. All right, Florio, fill me in. Well, Danny, it goes something like this. The city engineers were dredging the river for some social purposes or uh, No philosophy, Florio. I'm not up to it. Yeah, okay, Danny. Like I was going to tell you, they was dredging the river and they come upon a car at the bottom of Saint. Huh? They call the Derrick Department. The mobile department sends out a barge with a Derrick. The Derrick wraps a chain around the car, gives a mighty heave and a pull, and... There it is, Danny, hanging there in the floodlights. How did the car get in the river? Well, the engineers figured that the only place it could have come from was off that bridge up there. Where on the bridge? Well, that's what's funny. There ain't a mark on the bridge, not even a blemish. Guard rail ain't touched. If the car crashed... Through... I want pictures in every foot of the bridge. Now, let's get on the barge, Florio. Tell him to lower the car, Florio. Hey, engineer, lower the boom. Boy and girl in the car, Danny. It's a long time in the river. How long? The engineer says from the amount of rust on the car, two or three days. Here, help me open the car door, Florio. Yeah, Danny. It's well, that river water rusted the lock. What would you try? Bad man, you got muscles, Danny. Danny. Why did you have to call me, Florio? Why me? But this makes it all the more down your alley, Danny. The bullet holes plugged neatly in the heart region. One inch to each. They weren't not only drowned, were they? No. 
L'Oreal. Come here. Yeah? Yeah, Danny. What do you want? What does this look like to you? It looks like the front end of the car was smashed, like it hit something. Yeah. That's what it looked like to me. You think that's something, Danny? Come around here to the back. Now, you see that, Danny? And you tell me I shouldn't be philosophical. No, no. Yeah. Yeah, Danny. A sign. A sign that says, just married. <laughs> Broadway's My Beat first took to the air on CBS from New York on February 27, 1949. It starred Anthony Ross and was directed by John Dietz. After 15 weeks, with Dragnet breaking new ground on NBC, CBS moved the show's production to Hollywood. Elliot Lewis was by then helping to edit scripts for Bill Spear on Suspense. With the urging of men like Spear and Bill Robeson, the 28-year-old Lewis was given the chance to direct the show. He was born in Manhattan on November 28, 1917. He told Radio Life, you should hear the city constantly. Even the people in New York are noisy. Three sound men were often needed to recreate that New York flavor. Lewis's first regular turn as director came on July 7th, 1949, when the repackaged Broadway is My Beat, debuted as a summer replacement for the FBI in Peace and War. Along with David Friedkin, Morton Fine would become one of Lewis's go-to writers. Broadway is My Beat is the first series you wrote regularly. Was it your idea or your and David's no, idea? No, as a matter of fact, it had been done before David and I got hold of it. It was done out in New York. And the mavens in New York felt that whoever was writing it in New York was not capturing the flavor of New York, so they brought it to Hollywood, where two <laughs> other writers caught the flavor, allegedly, of New York by so, sitting down in Hollywood and writing. Larry Thor would star as Danny Clover. Larry Thor, marvelous man. We were good buddies. And a music anecdote about Larry which is revealing as the kind of pixie character he was in real life. He wanted to know what time it was. So he called the operator and asked her what time it was. And she wouldn't tell him. <laughs> he got back on the phone, asked for long distance. He wanted to talk person to person with his brother Magnus Thor in Reykjavik, Iceland. And he asked her what time it was there. He wanted to know whether he was calling at a proper hour. She told him. He then subtracted nine hours from that and found out what time it was in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Rounding out the regular cast was Charles Calvert as Tartaglia and Jack Crucian, doubling as both Sergeant Mugovan and Dr. Sinsky. My start was at CBS Radio here in Hollywood, doing a sustaining show, we used to call those. It meant you didn't... That's right. Sponsored, right? right. Non-sponsored. Yeah. It also meant you didn't get paid in those days. Oh, really? $3? No. 1938? Oh, I got gore. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it was 13 weeks. A wonderful experience because I got to play a different foreign character every week. And at the age of 16, that was pretty exciting. How about me. that? That's pretty, this kid here, are you kidding? She was a baby. Yeah. I was at least, I was a graduate of high school. 
Jack Crucian. What can I say about Jack? He always played two parts on Broadway's My Beat. One of Dr. Sinsky, character who was the medical doctor for the police department, and whoever else was needed as a character within the play. But he always doubled. Broadway's My Beat featured some of the best Hollywood radio talent, like Barney Phillips, Virginia Gregg, Tony Barrett, Herb Butterfield, Betty Lou Gerson, Hi Averback, Kathy Lewis, Harry Bartell, Lawrence Dobkin, Mary Jane Croft, and Herb Vigran. Although no sponsorship was forthcoming, CBS Brass was impressed with Elliot Lewis's capabilities. The March 17, 1950 episode was called the Charles and Jane Kimball murder case. Good morning, Danny. I give you a greeting, Danny. Good morning. Oh, hi, Sergeant. How are you? Tall in the saddle. You're what? Tall in the saddle, Danny. This is an answer heard all the time west of the Great Divide. Intelligence from my youngest boy, Giovanni, who was studying to be a cowboy by box tops and television. Yahoo, Tartaglio. And what kind of intelligence did you get from upstairs? Give me the rundown. Rundown to wit. Identity of occupants of car established from respective wallets. Established occupants to be Mr. and Mrs. Charles Kimball, knee Jane Miller. Mm-hmm. Married two days ago at the home of the bride where the groom had been an erstwhile and former boarder. Go ahead. Well, that's the intelligence from upstairs, Danny. And what may I ask is that envelope? Oh, here. It's the photographs Lou Jacobs took of the bridge off of which the cop plunged down. Hmm. Yeah. Now I believe it. This morning it was too early. Maybe I wasn't hearing right. But now I believe it. Huh? Look at these pictures. Uh, let's see. This guardrail on the bridge is four feet high. It's untouched. Uh-huh. Nowhere along the whole length of it is there a sign that the car crashed through it. Well, then how could the car get in the middle of the East River, Danny? Under 30 feet of water. That's a tall in the saddle type question, Sergeant. How did the car get there? <laughs> Tartaglia shrugged, blinked, silently pleaded to be excused from the room, didn't wait for permission, got out. That left me alone with it. How did the car get there? How did it hurdle a four-foot barrier without a mark, a scratch on said barrier? How? And then the question I'd been touting away from my brain. Why? Why the bullet-torn flesh of a boy and girl on a honeymoon, their blood washed away on a river slime? And then I knew no policeman's riddle, no games with the equations of murder could hold it back any longer. It had to be done, so I did it. I called on the parents of a dead bride. Just a moment. I'll only be a moment. Yes, what is it, please? Mrs. Miller? Yes, I'm Mrs. Miller. Oh, please, if you're selling something, I'm afraid I can't do you any good. You see, we're in a, in a kind of... A, well, everything's different now. And... I'm for the police, Mrs. Miller. Yes, I know, but I'm sorry. I'd like to help... The police? May I come in? Well, but everything's so upset. I, I don't like for people to see my house this way. I... It's about your daughter. Oh, but Jane's away on her honeymoon. May I come in, Mrs. Miller? Well, she won't be back for another ten days. Please come in. 
This way, Mr. Uh... Clover. Danny Clover. Uh, Mr. Clover. I'm sure you'll want to talk to my husband, too. We've been rearranging the furniture. You see, two of our rooms are unoccupied now, and uh, Ben... Yeah, what do you want? Well, don't move the chair now, Ben. It's the policeman, uh, Mr. Clover. Huh. <laughs> Couldn't you have stated your business at the door, Mr. Clover? You see, I'm quite occupied at the moment. We're... It's uh, something about Jane, Ben, about Jane. What do you have to do with her, Mr. Clover? Do you have a picture of your daughter? Oh, yes, we have a whole album. A recent picture? Well, one of the wedding of her and Charles and of Ben and me. May I see it, please? Wait a minute. What right have you to come into my house to... Oh, please, Ben. Mr. Clover just asked to look at Jane's picture. Well, there it is on the mantel, Mr. Clover. Well, that's Charles, her husband. Yes, Charles Kimball. Isn't he a fine-looking boy? There's no other way to say this. If there were another way, I'd give. They're dead. They're both dead. Murdered. Get out of my house. Go on. Go on. Get out. Please. Get him out of here. I'll kill him. What kind of a filthy joke is he trying to play on us? Go on. Get him out. Ben, Ben, don't. Don't. Who would want to kill our boy and girl, Mr. Clover? We don't know, Mrs. Miller. That's why I came here, because we don't know. Charles lived here with us. He... And Jane fell in love. They got married two days ago. They went on the honeymoon to Niagara Falls. We were waiting for a letter, a, a postcard. Why should they be killed, Mr. Clover? Charles, where are his family, Mrs. Miller? He had none. He came here after the war, rented a room from us, worked hard. Charles and Janie, they were two people, Mr. Clover, nothing more. <sighs> Tell him to ask someone else, Anne. Get what he wants from someone else. Not from us. Tell him that, Anne. Ben. Uh, what do you think it's doing to me? To me? They were found in a car in the... A car? The one we gave him for their wedding present. Uh, ben and I knew all along, so we uh, saved for it. Anne. Yes, Ben. What, what do you want? Ask him to help us, Anne. I'm sorry. Ask him to help us... Yes, Ben. Will you help us, Mr. Clover? It was a basic question. It had a background of a few thousand years to it. A man's child had been killed. A man's child needed avenging. As simple as that. There's a cult that comes with civilization. Men who put on white jackets buttoned at the throat and measure violent death with slide rules. Who stare at murder in the cross-section through microscopes. Who dissolve it and shake it up in test tubes until death has a color to it. One of the men in the white jackets was named John Gordon. He was a technician for the police department technical division. I called on him. Something I can do for you, Lieutenant? Yeah. The report on the automobile dredged out of the river early this morning. Huh? Just a minute. Well? Well, wait till I finish reading this article, Lieutenant. You don't expect me to put it down now, do you? Yeah, I expect that. Have you read it? No. No, I don't expect you have. The isometric measurement of hydrogen ion concentration versus colorimetric measurements. (laughs) 
Imagine you reading that. What do you read, Lieutenant? Obituaries, Gordon. Where's the report? I had it ready an hour ago. I waited for you. Now I'm here. Get it. I'll tell you about it. Chock full of charts and graphs and chemical reagents. <laughs> You'd be distressed. What's your great sorrow, Gordon? Who did what to you? The report, Lieutenant. It says the passenger car and the truck... What truck? Oh, please. All right. The size, the shape of the crumped front end of the passenger car, together with the molecular displacement of the metal, indicates that the car, assuming a normal rate of speed, indicates that the car hit a truck. What kind of truck? I was getting to that. I don't know. Scrapings indicate that the paint of the truck was new and not its original coat, a widely used paint. From information available, the make of the truck is impossible to identify. What else? Why, my job is done. Now it's in your, well, your very capable hands, I'm sure. Yeah. Pardon me. John Gordon, Police Department, Technical Laboratory speaking. Huh? Uh, yeah. Yes, uh, he's here. For you, Lieutenant. Thanks. Hello? They switched me to you, Danny. On account of I asked. It almost took too long. Who is this? Floyd Carpa, Danny. Come get me, kid. I got news for you. Well, tell me now, Carpa. What kind? Charles and Jane Kimber. The couple took a honeymoon in the river. Come get me, kid. Yeah, where? Bowery. 320 Front Street. Walk back hurry, kid. Carpa. Come get me, Danny. Please, listen. I never said it to a cop before. Listen. Come get me. Please. <laughs> It was a name to launch a minor nightmare. Floyd Carpa, a man who dressed too well, perhaps despite the memory of the years of wearing cast-off clothes. A little man with hate perched on his shoulder like a sharp-beaked creature. Vocation, hoodlum, majoring in bank holdups. Three of them, two convictions. Floyd Carpa in the Bowery. He didn't belong there. Carpa saying he knew about the Kimball murders. It didn't fit. Carpa saying please to the police. It didn't make sense. 320 Front Street, he'd said. I went there. Walked back, he said. I did that. I'm... Danny Clover here. Carpa? Carpa? Hey, what? I'm coming in. to make sure, but it was he. No hate now. Something lent its own special expression to his face. Something, the bullet wound in his stomach, the time of pain, the final hugging close of the darkness. Floyd Carper was dead. Hey everybody, I'm Lisa Brennan. And I'm Justin Trice. Are you a theater nerd or a movie buff? 
Are you interested in the world of fine art or the sleazy way celebrities break the law? Check out Crime of the Arts, a true crime comedy podcast that peeks behind the curtain to shine a light on the dark and untold truths of the creative arts. From film set mysteries to celebrity murders and art heists, we look past the bright lights to uncover what hides in the shadows. Join us each week when we both bring a surprise story to the episode with our pop culture-ridden sarcastic banter. Tune in every Wednesday to help get you over hump day. Crime of the Arts is available now everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Peace out, everybody. Peace out, everybody. Fred was a rebel against authority. He objected to authority whenever it attempted to interfere with what he wanted to do. Fred actually was not a comedian who used blue material, but the censors were terribly cautious, shall we say, and uh, would frequently read into the line something that was not there. And did you worry all week about that Sunday night show? You had to worry because you had to keep your rating, and when ratings became exposed to the uh, advertising people, why then you had to be conscious of that and also the sales of the product and the quality of your show and the competition and the opposition and things. There were many things to be concerned about. In your book, Treadmill to Oblivion, Mm -hmm. you say that radio is dying, that the giveaway programs forced people to give away their radios. In fact, you call giveaway quiz programs the buzzards of radio. That's true. How did you try to handle the situation when Stop the Music came on at the same time as your Sunday night show and took over? Stop the Music can't take all the credit. The problem came when Jack Benny and Amos and Andy and Edgar Bergen all went over to the other network and our show was left alone. We stayed with NBC and we were sort of vulnerable because most of the audience up until 8.30 went over to the other network or 8 o'clock I guess it was. And we were a show that was 18 years old, and consequently a new show which appealed to greed and, you know, supposedly the money was available for people. Actually, it wasn't. That's explained in the book, too. But the coming of the quiz show showed that the interest in the advertising part of the business, the advertising money supports the, the programs, they were interested in the cheaper shows that would get the larger audiences for their advertising purposes. They had no interest in the development of talent or in the quality of the shows, and consequently, when the quiz shows were cheap, then they became very popular, not because they, the public wanted them or because they were exceptionally good. It was principally because they were cheaper. I could see that nobody profited except the man who owned the quiz show. The network didn't profit because they were advertising 20 products who were giving their products to the people who owned the quiz show to advertise for nothing as far as the sponsor was concerned. They had no musicians on. They had nobody on. By January of 1949, Fred Allen was worn out. He'd spent years battling with sponsors and with NBC. In December of 1948, his Sunday at 8.30 rating was a healthy 20 points. But after Edgar Bergen left NBC's airwaves, the network moved Allen's show up a half hour to 8 p.m. Meanwhile on ABC, Stop the Music's popularity was soaring. Allen lost nearly half his audience in a single month. 
By March, Stop the Music's rating would reach 17.6, while Allen's fell to 9.4. Allen was a voracious reader, sometimes scouring 10 newspapers a day for topical material. In the end, perhaps he just cared too much, as close friend Donald Voorhees remembered. Each year, Fred dreaded more the chore of this weekly radio program that he had to do, and toward the end of the season, he'd be really quite beat. As a matter of fact, that brought on the question of what that brought on, the hypertension, high blood pressure because it got to be more and more of just a dreadful chore as time went on, because Fred would never settle for repeats or imitations. By June, with his rating down to an unthinkable 5.8, he'd had enough. The 55-year-old called it a 17-year radio career, after June 26, 1949. Jack Benny and Henry Morgan were his final guests. Fittingly, the program ran long, and Allen's network feed was cut off. Mr. Benny, uh, Mr. Benny, the reason that I'm here... You yes, see, Jack, I... look, Henry has to borrow $300 by 4 o'clock, or some shyster with a loan company will take his furniture and his moose head. Yes, Mr. Benny, see, we thought that maybe you $300. Would... Hmm... I'm a good risk, Mr. Benny. I've been working all winter. Yes. You worked all winter and you're broke? I'm flatter than something that's been stepped on. Mr. Morgan, this is rather a personal question, but what do you do with your money? I spend it. <laughs> I, I see your problem already. <laughs> uh, how, how do you spend your money? Well, after a hard day's work, I generally go into a bar for a cocktail. Yes. I buy drinks for everybody, and then we uh, go to dinner. We? After buying a few drinks, I suddenly acquire a crowd of friends. And you buy everybody dinner? Well, if I bring guests in to eat, I have to pick up the check, don't I? I've heard of it. The... <laughs> well, uh, after dinner, the whole gang follows me to a nightclub. I, I pay the check and tip everybody wearing a mess jacket. Always end up broke. That's why I need $300. Mr. Morgan, if you would do as I do, you would need $300. Well, what do you do? Well, after a hard day's work like you, I go into a bar. And uh, you buy a drink? First, I let out a shriek so everybody sees me, and then I faint. You faint? A crowd gathers. Somebody gives me three or four brandies to bring me two. <laughs> I get up off the floor, shake hands all around, and leave for dinner. <laughs> uh. Do you eat alone, Mr. Benny? No, I usually find a group of friends at a table and I sit with them. Who pays for the dinner? Well, all during the meal, I keep feeling my pad of butter. You keep feeling your butter? Yes. When it comes time to pay, I reach for the check. While my hand is slipping around, somebody else picks it up. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I'd like to know something. After dinner, do you go out to a nightclub? Always. I order champagne for everybody. And then just before the floor show finishes... I swallow four sleeping pills fast. Four sleeping pills? Yes, I don't know how the party ends up or who pays the check. I just wake up in bed the next day well-rested. <laughs> you, see, you see, Henry, Mr. Benny really knows how to live. Well, and nobody ever made me this cheap on my own program. <laughs> Mr. 
Well, uh, uh, Mr. Chief, Mr. Benny, I'll certainly follow your advice. Well, there's just one more thing. Yes, Mr. Morgan. Can you let me have $300? Yes, Jack. Henry has to have $300 by 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock? Why, it's 5 after 4 now. Excuse me, that's the phone. I'll answer it in the booth. Fred, it's five after four. I'm ruined. Now, Henry, Henry, don't go to pieces. My friend, my furniture, my moose head, the Mohawk Loan Company will take everything. Henry, I'll go home with you. Maybe I can talk to the shyster who's president of that Mohawk Loan Company. Oh, I'm sorry, fellas. I have to leave. That phone call was urgent. Some business just came up. Well, let's go, Henry. Maybe I can give you fellas a lift. Which way are you going? Well, I'm going home. I live on East 61st Street. Really? I'm going to East 61st Street. I live at 331. Now, that's a coincidence. I'm going to 331. Then you must be coming to my house. I don't know. I have to pick up some furniture and a moose head. Jack, besides running a turnstile in the subway, a slot in the office... I also happen to be the shyster who's president of the Mohawk Loan Company. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Through general acceptance, I think you find that Things change as you progress. Not always for the better, but they change. <laughs> Life is constant adjustment to change. I mean, nothing stays as it is. And I'm sorry about that. It is uh, unfortunate that you can't just pick a time in your life where things are going well and the children are at a certain age and you just stop there and just live eternally, but you can't do that. What time it's... of your life, if you could do that, would you want to... Well, I've been so busy, I've never given it any thought. It's a waste of time anyway. You can't accomplish it, so why waste your time thinking about something you can't do? Well, I would think possible. you would have picked the time when Sunday nights you had the greatest radio program in the country. I also had the greatest aggravation and the greatest stress and the bigger taxes at that time, too. So here's just something on the other side. There's something to be said on the government side, too. Although Fred Allen's program came to a close, he was still under contract to NBC. When the network launched The Big Show, Allen became a regular. The 90-minute program debuted on November 5, 1950. It was an attempt to revive NBC's Sunday night ratings. It was hosted by Tallulah Bankhead, written by Goodman Ace, with music by Meredith Wilson, announced by Jimmy Wallington, and rotated a star-studded cast. Ace had long been an admirer of Fred's work. Allen appeared on 24 of the show's 57 episodes, including the landmark premiere. It was in one of the many acerbic letters I got from Fred when I was in Hollywood that he wrote his now famous description of the West Coast. California, he said, is a wonderful place to live if you happen to be an orange. One day I asked Fred why he always typed in lowercase. Doesn't the shift key on your typewriter work, Fred? And he said, yes, but I've never been able to shift for myself. An hour and 30 minutes, this program will present in person such bright stars as... Fred Allen. Mindy Carson. Jimmy Durante. Jose Ferrer. Portland Hoffa. Frankie Lane. Paul Lucas. Ethel Merman. Russell Knight. Danny Thomas. Meredith Wilson. And my name, darling, is Lula Bankhead. <laughs> Broadcasting Company presents The Big Show. Each episode cost over $100,000 to produce. Hopes were high, 
Before the show's launch, the entire cast flew out to London for a lavish publicity stunt. Although Alan was as funny as ever, the British press were unimpressed, and the show was a flop. In Paris, he came up with some of the funniest lines I personally have ever heard. He said that the food in Paris is served in flames. For the first time, the American in Paris enjoys food he can read by. He also had the great lines about the money. He said that, you know, French money is made of ridiculously thin paper. And he said that it was the thinnest paper he'd ever seen in public. He also had lines like, French money is Kleenex with murals. He said he'd been blowing his nose in it for five days before he found out it was money. Practically nothing was sacred in that respect to Fred, and many people mistook this as bitterness, which it was not at all. It was the man's innate sense of what was comic and what was attackable in any given situation, and this included, incidentally, himself. Amazingly, the show was brought back for a second season, but by the end, NBC had lost a million dollars and made no dent into CBS's Sunday night ratings. After the final broadcast on April 20th, 1952, Fred Allen was happy to walk away. Fred, my darling, you fool. It's so nice to have you back on radio. I've missed you. Oh, so you are the one. (laughs) According to Hooper, you are the one. No, darling, we've all missed you. Why don't you come back, Fred? Well, I'll tell you, darling. I, uh... I have been dabbling in something which, for the want of a better name, we shall call television. Please, darling, people are eating. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Say, you didn't by any chance happen to see me on my first television show, did you? No, I didn't, Fred. Uh, Oh, you weren't home? Oh, oh, yes, I was home, darling. Oh, no set, darling? No guts, darling. (laughs) Well, you know television's a new medium. And I have discovered why they call it a media. Because nothing is well done. Oh, very good. Alan eventually did break into television. First as the MC of Judge for Yourself. And finally as a regular panel guest on the CBS quiz show, What's My Line? Time now for everybody's favorite guessing game, What's My Line? And now let's meet our award-winning What's My Line panel. First, the delightful star of stage and television, Miss Arlene Francis. And now, our charming humorist, Mr. Fred Allen. And now, a surprise, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Dorothy Kilgallen. <laughs> Between 1954 and 56, he also worked as a newspaper columnist and as a memoirist, renting a small New York office to work without distractions. There he wrote Treadmill to Oblivion, which reviewed his radio and TV years, and Much Ado About Me, which covered the early years of his life. Treadmill was the best-selling book on radio's classic period for many years. When it was published, 
he appeared on the Texan Jinx radio show out of WNBC in New York. On the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, November 24, 1954, to talk about his career. The show was broadcast from Peacock Alley at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. The weather was dreary, which only added to Fred's usual sense of sarcastic humor. Any successful person, or especially a comedian who gets involved in the mechanized version of the entertainment world, has to compete with the machine, and of course he has to lose the battle because the machine is going to survive and the comedian, I treat comedians because I know more about them and was formerly and am currently an alleged comedian. But treadmill to... Well, you're on a treadmill if you're on, we did 700 and some odd hours during the 18 years we were on radio and ultimately the machine is still here, the microphone is still here and I became ill, not from reading the jokes, but I mean from pressure and work and sustained aggravation and things like that. I wonder if you just read the last couple of lines in your book. Well, that that tells you. When a radio comedian, whether or not he knows it, the successful comedian is on a treadmill to oblivion. When a radio comedian's program is finally finished, it slinks down memory lane into the limbo of yesterday's happy hours. All that the comedian has to show for his years of work and aggravation is the echo of forgotten laughter. By 1954, Allen already had a heart attack. Always a letter writer, he reflected upon the lifestyle changes he was forced to adopt in a note to friend Doc Rockwell. Doc, he says, I can't eat salt, I can't eat sugar, I can't have any meat, I can't lie on the sand, I can't go in the water. I may just as well stay down here and stay in a closet. And a sort of a prophetic little party had in there I don't know how it came up, but he says the way to live is to live each day as if that day may be the last, and someday you'll be right. Taking a late-night stroll up New York's West 57th Street on a blustery cold Saturday night, St. Patrick's Day, 1956, Allen suffered a heart attack and died on the spot. He was 61. Due to the public nature of his death, Reporters were quick to arrive at the scene. The next day's Sunday Daily News cover featured a photo of his body with the headline, Fred Allen Dies in Street. Mort Green remembered going to his office shortly thereafter. One of the most touching things was coming back to this office the Tuesday after Fred had died. He'd been there on Saturday. We hadn't been in the office for, oh, six or seven days. And we never quite were sure when Fred had been in the office. We knew he was there every day, and yet you never, there, were by, there was never any sign that Fred had occupied this place, except if you knew Fred. Everything was neat as a pin. The dust was still neat. He disturbed so little, and yet disturbed so much with his tremendous talent. But personally, he was the most methodical in the finer sense of what methodical means, rather than against the drudgery sense of it. Uh, We walked in that following Tuesday and opened the refrigerator and there were the two bottles of apple juice and the four or five pieces of fruit and the the little container of cottage cheese. And in the bottom of the wastebasket, which was quite clean, were a few little shavings from the pencils he had sharpened, the last pencils he had sharpened. But when I opened the secretary drawer and in it were 12 brown paper bags neatly folded. 
These were the bags with which he had brought to work the fruit, the apple juice, and so on. He never threw them away in case we might possibly need them. His death sent the entertainment industry into deep mourning. Jack Benny was profoundly shaken. In truth, as funny as Benny was, he was never exactly the same without his old sparring partner. During the following night's Sunday broadcast of What's My Line, host John Daly preceded the program with a special message to the viewing audience. Steve Allen took Fred's place on the panel. This is a melancholy time for us, as I'm sure it is for you. I'm sure most of you know that during last night, Fred Allen passed away. It was our thought that tonight we would invite some of Fred's old friends here and we'd talk about Fred, his contributions to American humor and American culture. Or perhaps we would go into the library of film, which we have, excerpt it and tell something of the story of Fred Allen and the great contributions that he made to our industry. Mrs. Allen, the beloved Portland, specifically has asked us not to do that. It was her feeling that if we wished to pay tribute to Fred, the best tribute we could pay him would be to do this program just as if he were here with us. Fred was a professional performer, and he did a great many shows, I'm sure, when he didn't feel like laughing. But he did them, and we're going to try to do them in that same tradition. And so, for Arlene Francis and Steve Allen, an old friend who was kind enough to come and help us tonight, and Dorothy Kilgallen and Bennett Cerf, we are going to do What's My Line the way Fred would have liked to had it done. During the final 90 seconds of the program, Steve Allen, Arlene Francis, and Bennett Cerf gave heartfelt tributes to Fred. Until next week, this is John Daly saying goodnight, Miss Arlene. John, uh, at this point, I would just like to express a feeling that I feel sure must be shared by millions of Americans. Fred Allen was not only a great talent, but a great gentleman, and he shall be sorely missed. Good night, Fred. Steve? Just a few months ago, sitting in this chair, I believe Fred read a postcard viewer had sent to What's My Line asking, is Fred Allen Steve Allen's father? Fred laughed at it. The answer, of course, was no. But last night, when I heard the sad news, I couldn't have been any more depressed if the answer had been yes. Don't thank you, Steve, and uh, thank you for being here. I think your being here has helped all of us to carry on. The half hours that I spent with Fred Allen in the dressing room before I watched my line every Sunday night meant a great deal to me. Goodbye, Fred. Like so many others who loved and appreciated you, I'll never forget you. John. And Mrs. Allen, we hope that this is a watch my line that Steve would have, or rather Fred would have liked very much. We tried to make it that way. Good night, ladies and gentlemen, and thanks for being with us on What's My Line. He was buried at Gate of Heaven Cemetery in Hawthorne, New York. Both his real and stage names are engraved on the headstone. Treadmill to Oblivion is one of the best-selling autobiographical books by any radio star in history. And in the big show, there was a theme song written by Magic Wilson that we always ended the show with. And I would like to end this tribute by quoting the last line on the big show. May the good Lord bless and keep you until we meet again. Good night, darling.
although Fred Allen's death left a massive hole in mid-century comedy. It's not as though there weren't other humorists battling with networks and sponsors. Just ask Gene Shepard. Gene Shepard was born on July 26, 1921 in Hammond, Indiana. He served in the Army Signal Corps in World War II and briefly attended Indiana University. Shepard began his broadcasting radio career in early 1945 on WJOB and later working at WTOD in Toledo, Ohio in 1946. Shepard spent the early 1950s at WSAI and WLW in Cincinnati and he had a late-night broadcast on KYW in Philadelphia. Sure and begotta, it's time for another one of New York's nuttiness days. Sure and begotta, it's St. Patty's Day. Sure. <laughs> he moved to New York for WOR and debuted on February 26, 1955. Uh, by way of a disclaimer, for those of you who cannot tolerate St. Patrick's Day, I would warn you, uh, the following program is that will make you... Uh, Want to flow up? Uh, we're gonna... <laughs> oh, yeah, Sean and Bigota, it's St. Patty's Day. Bring it up. The Gene Shepard Show broadcast for almost 21 years to an audience all along the eastern seaboard, thanks to WOR's 50,000 watt clear channel signal. This is audio from his March 17, 1967 broadcast. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get right out here. Hey, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, I have a, you know, even though it's Friday night, you know, Friday's a very exciting time. We get all ready and do all the whoopee stuff and yell and holler. Do you mind tonight, since it is St. Patrick's Day and there is no, I, I don't think really there is any holiday that gets New York as completely involved as St. Patrick's Day. Now, a lot of people are going to say Christmas, but I don't think so. I think, I think there's something about St. Patrick's Day that completely involves this nutty town. And I've never seen it anywhere else, even including Ireland, you know, <laughs> which is the nuttiest part of it all. I've been to, I've been in Ireland myself several times. And I remember one day, uh, I'm, I'm in, I'm in Dublin, see, and, uh, I'm, I'm standing, I'm standing in the bar at the Shelburne. And, uh, I'm hoisting a few. Uh, after all, when you're in Ireland, you must do as the Romans do when you're in Rome. Uh, when you're in Rome, you don't, uh, Sit around there and eat, uh, eat, uh, well, I'll tell you this for, for one thing. When you're in Rome, you don't sit around and have, uh, Braunschweiger. Uh, in Rome, you don't sit around and eat, uh, sauerkraut. In Rome, of course, you have pasta, you have, uh, you have lasagna. And when you're in, uh, Dublin, uh, you do as the Romans do. And so I'm standing there up against the bar in the Shelburne and I'm uh, having a little of the, uh, Irish mist and looking into the mirror. And standing next to me is probably the most Irish of all the Irishmen I've ever known. A genuine Irishman, I mean, really. Can you imagine an Irishman with a name more Irish than Seamus Kelly? I mean, Seamus Kelly. I mean, it's not like, but old Seamus looks at me, and I look at Seamus, and we're sipping of the dew, and I said, uh, Seamus, we're in Dublin. He said, ah, Dublin. And then we looked back into the mirror again, and over the mirror they had this painting of this naked lady. Very large, naked lady, an Irish naked lady. She had red hair, 
And uh, she looked very Irish from me. That's what, one of the reasons why that painting was over the mirror in the bar there, because she was so Irish, wasn't it? <laughs> she had a lot of hips, all of her. And so uh, we're both looking into the mirror, and, and uh, Seamus suddenly says to me, uh, uh, it's a shame I can't be in New York at this time of year. And I said, what's the matter, Seamus? He said, oh, there's nothing like New York on St. Patty's Day. I said, nothing like New York on St. Patty's Day? I said, but Seamus, we're in Dublin on St. Patty's Day. Ah, it's nothing, nothing. Nothing, lad, nothing. St. Patty's Day in Dublin is just another day. <laughs> but oh, I'll tell you, in New York, uh, you mind if I do a little reminiscing about Ireland tonight? You, you like that? I mean, one of the most, uh, one of the, one of the most, uh, poignant countries is Ireland. I don't, I can't explain it. Uh, I've been in many countries. I've been pretty much all over the world. And each country is, is, is beautiful in its own right. There's no question about it because we're living on a beautiful earth. And, uh, that is, it's beautiful from the eye of man. And this is the way we define beauty. And so if you're standing in the Negev desert, I find it beautiful. Uh, if I'm in, uh, in the streets of Bangkok with that hot searing oriental sun racking down, I find it beautiful. I find Ireland beautiful. It's a superb country. But each country has a word in my own mind that kind of uh, captures, I don't want to oversimplify, but kind of captures. For example, you must say this about Israel. Israel's exciting. It's an exciting country. Uh, America is a dynamic country. Uh, everybody I know that comes to America, there's something in the air about America. It makes, makes people know. You agree with me? It's a dynamic, strange country. Uh, I've been to countries that could be called languid. Languid. You you step out of the plane and you walk down the street and it's like you're you're in the middle of some kind of soft, warm syrup. It's a languid country. You've been in them. Then I've been in countries that are uh, lascivious. Oh yeah, I've been in lascivious. And and uh, some night after the show, for those of you who are over 21, we'll sit around and talk about a few of those countries. And they're not the ones you think they are. Generally, people think they're Sweden. Not at all. I find Sweden one of the great last bastions of true prudery. Uh, and that's, uh, that's in another sense. But, but uh, Ireland, Ireland is a poignant country. A curious sense that, that hanging over all the hills, I remember stopping by the side of a road one time in this car, driving along, and little English Ford, and I'm all by myself, and, and uh, I stop by the side of the road. And off in the distance, you can see these light blue hills. And I was driving, I was driving to Dublin. And uh, between the blue hills and the road, there were, oh, maybe uh, three or four miles of peat bogs. And there was a soft, grayish blue, vaguely, uh, vaguely pink smoke rising or a few little houses between me and the mountains. And it was absolutely silent. And it was just about this time of the year. In fact, it was uh, in March, and that's one of the reasons why I mentioned talking to Seamus about being in Dublin on, on St. Patty's Day, which is exactly what happened a few days later. But I looked over this, uh, this long, low, rolling field, this peat bog, and you could smell it. You could smell the... Uh, you could smell the, the grass, and you could smell 
the peat, and you could smell the smoke. It was all mingled in the air. And in the distance, I could see this uh, this low-lying hill, just a, a low a low ridge of hills, and they were purple and vaguely grayish and kind of misty like clouds drifting away. And behind me on the left, there was another short hill that rose green. Every, You know, Ireland really is green. I'm going to say that to you. It's a combination of its of its uh, of its uh, geographical location and the sea air that's always sweeping in over this this country. It's absolutely green. It's beautiful from that from that green, grayish, soft tinted back. I always think of Scotland as burnt orange. Scotland is a burnt orange, brown, uh, shabui country. It's a, it's a lovely country, but a different kind of country, different color, different feeling in the air than it is in Ireland. And off to my left was the sea and a short hill. And rising out of this hill, there was a mound of, of red and gray granite stones. What was left of an ancient castle that had slowly uh, given up and drifted down into the darkness of the ancient past. And now all you could see was this pile of stones outlined against the sky. And this was not tourist country. It was an old, old stone home that had finally lost the battle. And I could smell the smoke. It was silent. And some, you could hear bells ringing on cows. They always have cows. Off, uh, there's always a cow somewhere near you in Ireland. And you could hear the bells ringing on the cows. And I don't know why, but I had a feeling not of how beautiful this is, which it was. I did not have a feeling of what a great place to be, which it was, but a feeling of how sad all this is, what a sad place Ireland is, in a curious kind of kind of way, and uh, and yet it's a yet it's a, play, a place where, where there's a lot of fun and a lot of joy. Don't don't mistake me. It's not it's not that the people are sad, not at all, but there's there's that poignant quality, that that quality of something vaguely lost, and and. With that bluish tint, that that always hanging gray, blue, green, soft haze it is in Ireland. After you're in Ireland, maybe I would say, oh, maybe a month. You really do believe in elves. You honestly do. You believe in, in, uh, in elves and fairies and little people. Because if they're anywhere in the world, they're in Ireland. Now, I'm not, it's, this is a, why? Well, it's hard to say. And I remember one afternoon, uh, walking, walking along a winding street in Dublin, right near the river. And that's one of the most beautiful rivers in the world, by the way. Walking, and across the river, could, you could see the, the brewery. And you could smell the Guinness stout hanging in the air. What a country. And we're walking along through this winding street that was vaguely wet, and I'm with Seamus. And I said, you know, uh, Seamus, uh, uh, it's a funny country. And this is uh, after I had been there maybe two or three times. And uh, the, the, the actual feeling of Ireland began to drift down into me. Uh, when you're first there, all you're interested in is, uh, is, the, is the great dialogue and the dialect and the way the people talk. And Seamus and I were going out to lunch. And Seamus uh, is a writer in Ireland. Almost all Irish, Irishmen are writers in one way or another, even if they never write, even if they only talk. <laughs> it's a, again, it's maybe perhaps that sense of something lost and gone. 
which causes Irishmen to be what they are and talk the way they do and think the way they think. And that we went into this tavern. You know, the curious thing about Ireland, too, is the love-hate quality about it. That all Irishmen love Ireland and hate Ireland. Maybe it's like life itself. Maybe this is why Ireland has a unique place in the hearts of everyone all over the world. Because I suspect that more of life, I mean the real quality of what life is, can be found in Ireland than anywhere else in the world. Just like your own life. You hate it and you love it. And it's hard to know which is the most important. And you keep going back and forth, drifting around between those two, those two poles, love and hate, love and hate. And in Ireland, it's always there. You look around and it's green and soft and you can smell the sea and you can hear the birds and the bells. And there's that drifting haze of peat bog and smoke and the magnificent horses and the beautiful cattle and the roads, the winding roads and the old castles. And you have the sense of love and hate. And it's not really hate. It's sadness, really, more than anything else. Because I don't think most people hate life. They get sad about life. And at the same time, they don't really love life. They exhilarate in it. They ecstasy in it. And uh, this is the way it is in, in Ireland. You can't say you love it and you can't say you hate it. And the Irishmen themselves, if you notice, most Irishmen leave Ireland and then spend the rest of their lives writing about it. With that strange Sean O'Casey, James Joyce, Frank Sullivan, you can go on down the line and, and uh, there they are, all of them. That, that, uh, that uh, strange, speaking of, oh, that's, that reminds me, this is WOR, New York. Hit the whoopee button, will you, man? There are many good beers in America today. And a fine thing it is because you have a choice of quality, of taste, of name, and of price. Now, for those who have a more than average liking for a refreshing glass... Well, that brings our look at St. Patrick's Day to a close. But not to worry, the green fields of the mind will remain in April. All two, strike two, they're taking a cut at everything the Dean serves up there. Trying to get that tying run around. Hogan's a fast enough boy on his feet. Ready for that next ball to be pitched. Umpire dusts off the home plate. The sun has gone back up a cloud somewhere. We can't see the cloud, but it's somewhere off to the west. Then the saddest game I believe I ever lost, and the toughest game I ever lost. I hurt my arm in between 34 and 38, and I was sold to the Chicago Cubs for $185,000 and four ball players, and with my sore arm. And we won the pennant that year, and I was pitching the second game against the New York Yankees. Cup fans are yelling for Dizzy to hold him. Runner on first, ready to go with the pitch. Dizzy stretches. Steps off the mound as he finds out that the hitter has stepped out of the batsman's box. Ball three, strike two, two down, and the runner on first can go with the pitch. Dean is pitching to Selkirk. Dean stretches. And uh, in the eighth inning, I had him beat three to two. And Cross said he came up the plate and hit a three and two pitch into the left field seat for a home run and beat me four to three. Well, I didn't have a thing on the ball. It was a lot of difference throwing that nothing ball up there in 38, and it was that far ball in 34. All three, strike two, two men down, and Hogan first base. Dean rid of the Pistons, ball down to Crosetti. Dean swings out of the mound, throws the rubber, runner on first can go with the pitch, and a three and two with two down. There he goes. Here's the pitch. There goes the ball for a hell of a high, 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 long drive. Out in the left field stand for a home run. 
Does he hit the home run out into the left field stands and the score has now changed complexion. It's the Yankees, four, and the Cubs, three. Two runs coming in, and that's only hit number five off the pitching of Dean. A well-hit ball. He's been aiming for that all afternoon. The Yankees are all jumping up and down over there on the bench, and they're patting Crossetti on the head and hitting him on the back. Crossetti finally got the first home run of the World Series. There goes the ball for a high foul toward first. No sense going for that. It's way back in there. I was taken out of the ball game, and Gabby Hart was our manager that year. I uh, went over to the dugout, and I really felt bad. And the fans in the Chicago ballpark, something like 45,000 people, stood up and cheered as I left the mound. And uh, when I started going to the dugout, you could hear the pin drop. I finally went in on into the clubhouse, and the fellow I saw up there first was a grand old man of baseball, Connie Mack. He put his arms around my shoulder, and I sort of felt a little better. He said, son, he said, you pitched a great ball game out there with what you had on the ball. He said, there's one game I'd like to see you won, although it was against our American League club. Next time on Breaking Walls, in honor of Major League Baseball's opening day, we take a trip to the batter's box and bring our radios with us. We'll tell and hear baseball stories from some of the most famous broadcasters and players in American history. The reading material for today's episode was Treadmill to Oblivion and Much Ado About Me by Fred Allen On the Air by John Dunning Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg The Museum of Broadcast Communications Encyclopedia of Radio by Christopher H. Sterling As well as articles from the New York Daily News and the New York Times On the interview front Fred Allen was interviewed by Texan Jinx on NBC Radio November 24th, 1954. Goodman Ace, Tallulah Bankhead, Jack Benny, Mort Green, Jim Harkins, George Jessel, Doc Rockwell, Donald Voorhees, Pat Weaver, Roger White, and Herman Wook spoke for Biography and Sound, May 29th, 1956. Dennis Day and Phil Harris spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear these full chats at speakingofradio.com. Dennis Day and Elliot Lewis spoke to John Dunning for his 71 KNUS program from Denver. Morton Fine was with Dan Hafley. Jack Crucian with Jim Bohannon. Orson Welles on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And George Burns spoke to Barbara Walters. Selected music featured in today's episode was The Sales of Galway by W.B. Snuffy Walden. Overture on Hebrew Themes, Opus 34, by Andre Moisan. The Minstrel Boy, by Jacqueline Schwab. Someone to Watch Over Me, by Blossom Deary. And Swing into Spring, by Benny Goodman. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio soap opera set in 1835 in New York City. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. 
Breaking Walls episode 138 will steal home with baseball radio memories. This episode will be available beginning April 1st, 2023, everywhere you get a podcast and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until April 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 137. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.